This is Jocko Podcast number 112 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I had a friend, and someday, when I can, I will tell you all about him. But until then, for now, I will say that I could not have asked for a better friend. Did he have faults? Sure. Don't we all? Now, most of his faults weren't really that big of a deal, but they were raw. Raw because he admitted to them all openly and directly and naively, to be honest. In a sort of pointed and heavy-handed self-critique, he would bear his weaknesses to the world and to me and to himself. And he would speak to me as if I had no faults. And I would try to explain otherwise, but he wouldn't listen. He would only judge himself. I'm too emotional, he would say. Not really, I'd tell him. I don't know how to talk to people right. Sure you do, I'd say. I make the same mistakes over and over and over again, he would say. We all do, I would tell him. I was better than him at some things. We both knew that. There were other things he was better at than me. But he always downplayed those things. And we both knew that too. When we were overseas, in a bad place, in a wretched place, he never complained. And I gave him every reason to. I put him in the worst locations with the greatest possible chances for failure and the highest probability for fire and fury and blood and death. But despite the enemy and the heat and the living conditions and the fear and the wounded men and the screams and the misery that was all around, he did not complain. It seemed at times that God himself was trying to test the limits of my friend. And it seemed like sooner or later, the bullets or the bombs would find him. But through some incomprehensible miracle, he survived through that deployment. Now, I make no claim whatsoever to understand why things in life unfold the way they do. In fact, I must say that many of the things I've seen in the world make no sense to me at all. 
Sometimes it's just utter confusion, no rhyme, no reason. Some of the things that I've seen have left me downright disgusted, jaded, repulsed, sickened by mankind and the awful and reprehensible things we are capable of. But there's another side to that. There's another side, and there are other people who do their best to redeem all the evil our souls are capable of. My friend was one of those people. After deploying with me and surviving that bloody and violent battlefield, my friend, like most of the guys in my old job, he volunteered to deploy again. I thought and I told him prematurely and incorrectly that the enemy was done. I told him that the war was all but over. I told him just do the deployment and sit tight over there and play the game and in a few months we'll be back and we can go surfing and we can play guitar and we can tell stories and we can cook steaks and we can surf some more. I told him we could carry on when he got home. That was the plan. It was a good plan. But the enemy gets a vote. And there was intense violence during that deployment for him as well. It was similar to what we had experienced together overseas, an aggressive enemy, hell-bent on killing Americans, mixed in an urban environment with a terrified local populace. He told me that the enemy he was now facing wasn't as tactically skilled as the enemy we had faced, but he said that they were braver and more determined. That seemed to concern him a bit more. He seemed to feel the odds were that he would die. He sent me his last will and testament. He was not morose about it, just stating the facts. It's bad over here. The enemy is aggressive. Casualty rates are very high. The enemy has new weapons that are extremely capable. It didn't look good. I waited. I waited the long and completely powerless wait. One known mostly by mothers and fathers and wives and children that are old enough to understand. But a wait also made by the brothers at home that know the risk all too well. It was a long wait. At my friend's memorial service, his brother told a story. My friend had talked to his brother on the phone 
while my friend was on deployment. And my friend had explained to his brother in no uncertain terms the situation that my friend was in. The enemy was extremely hostile. The battlefield was chaotic. The attacks were frequent and furious. It was violence that my friend had not experienced before. This was war unleashed and it seemed to be heading to an inescapable conclusion. And my friend's brother sensed this. Even through the phone, even thousands of miles away as his brother, he sensed the darkness and the overwhelming finality of the situation. And he said to my friend, do you need anything from me? How can I help? Is there anything that I can do? And my friend was quiet for a moment. And then my friend made one simple request. He said, pray for my men. Now, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that level of selflessness, that level of faith and of commitment and of care for others, that dedication in the face of fear and violence and death to at that moment put others before yourself. do good to be heroic and strong and brave and yet at the same time to be humble and to be willing to sacrifice everything for your friends that's a man and I couldn't have asked for a better friend The world can be a horrible place. It's filled with violence and treachery and sometimes it seems that the legions of demonic powers have the upper hand in the battle between good and evil and it can seem that all might be lost. And then we remember we see the light and for me the light comes from the example of others in this case another person another human being my friend who despite all the powers of darkness stood up and rejected all that wickedness and proved that there is hope and there is a path to light 
and we can get on that path if we choose to do so like my friend did and that's life at least as far as I can unravel the mystery that's what I see we are here and the best thing we can do is stand against the darkness and try to spread light in the world but that can be a very hard thing to do because life is not easy in fact it is said and there are very few that would deny that life itself is suffering but there is a way and there is a path and today I have someone on the podcast for a second time that I think can help guide us down that path away from darkness and toward the light dr. Jordan B Peterson welcome back to the podcast for a second time thanks Jargo you were on podcast number 98 last time and if anyone wants to stop right now go and listen to 98 if you haven't listened to it yet and that's a good place to start learning about you and then you could also just google Jordan Peterson and go from there because there's thousands you think there's thousands of hours of you, of content of you on YouTube yeah there's there's probably horrible as it is to contemplate <laughs> yeah there there probably is I mean I've contributed about 500 hours probably of lectures and so on but people have been cutting it up and right. there's all the podcasts and and YouTube videos that other people have made and I think I looked the other day because people keep chopping up the lectures and the interviews right. and making little videos and my son and I tried to estimate it last week. It looked like 4,000 people had made videos last week. In one saying, week. In one week, yeah. It's, it's really, yeah, it's crazy. It's, it really is. Okay, so you've got a new book out, and the book is called 12, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And you know, one of the key points in the book is life is suffering, right? And, and clearly, um, I think guys, And malevolence. Because <laughs> yeah. the yes, suffering's sure. not enough, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we need a little. We need a little bonus on yeah, top yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we need to inflict it. <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously, in my old line of work, uh, we, we got to see that, and we got to see it all the time. Two things. Number one, where does that come from? And, and I, you don't need to spend a bunch of time on that because you've you've talked about that so much. But w- more important to me, what happens when people miss that point? Well, the, the suffering seems to be built in, in some sense. And, and it's a very difficult thing to understand fully, um, because the fundamental question is, does being justify suffering? It's something like that. And, and there's this old idea. I, I read this. It was a Jewish idea. It's, it's kind of a riddle. And so it's a riddle about the nature of God. And so the riddle runs... What does a being who's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, so those are the three classical attributes of God, lack? You think, well, that's 
nothing, obviously. It's no limitation. Mm-hmm. And so and so that was the explanation for why God created everything, but more particularly why God created man. It's that there's something about limitation that adds to completeness. Maybe because it, it provides something to struggle against. It's something like that. And in the book, in 12 Rules for Life, I talk about what happens to, happened to Superman in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like <laughs> Superman got so powerful that you could bounce hydrogen bombs off his chest, you know, and he could move planets. It's like, and then he got boring at the same time because what, he, what are you going to do to him? Nothing. It's like right. he, he can just solve every problem instantly. Well, there's no story there. And you might say, well, who cares if there's a story? And, and that's a reasonable objection. Maybe there should just be no story at all, right? That's the Mephistophelian <laughs> objection to life. There should be no story at all. But maybe that's not the right answer. Maybe it's better to have being even if it requires limitation, even if the limitation necessitates suffering, even if the limitation and the suffering necessitate evil, and that, that's a separate issue. Perhaps there's a way of maneuvering through that, a pathway that makes that all not only acceptable, let's say at least acceptable, that would be a good start, but, but fully justifiable, something that you would voluntarily accept if you had the opportunity. Nietzsche, Nietzsche sort of cottoned onto that in some sense with his idea of the re- eternal re- return. He said, you should try to live each moment of your life so that if you had to live that moment recurring for eternity, that you would find that desirable. It's like, it's a high standard, man. <laughs> so, but, but, but there's a very interesting point there, which is that maybe you can say that despite the suffering and malevolence, this is worth it. And I think people have experiences like that in their life. You know, um, and you can have more experiences if you live your life, I would say, according, if you're on the proper path, then maybe your life can consist of almost nothing but experiences like that. Now, you know, I say that knowing full well that people get cut off at the knees and that life can be very arbitrary and hard and that everyone is is prone to the the negative consequences of deceit and betrayal, all of those things. I mean, the book, the book, Twelve Rules for Life, in some sense, is a very dark book, but it's not exactly because the darker the darkness, the brighter the light appears. It's something like that. And you know, you say, well, no, life's not so bad, and you can be happy. And I think, no, life really is bad. It's really bad. And no matter how bad you think it is, it's actually worse than that. You can't really get to the bottom of how terrible things can get. You know, people who have post-traumatic stress disorder know that. Mm -hmm. You know, they've hit something so bad that they cannot live with it. They have no idea how to live with it. And it hurts them, not just psychologically, but physiologically as well. It's very difficult to recover. So they have a sense of how bad it can be, and then they can hardly live with it. But I would say, despite that, and I would say also that this is the central idea in in 12 Rules for Life, is that despite that bottomless horror in some sense, there is a way of being that's powerful enough to both transcend and justify that in some sense. And that has to do with, with, with the decision to act as if it would be better if things were better. That's the first thing. And you think, well, that's easy. I'd like things to be better. It's no, no, wait a second. There's hatred in your heart and there's resentment in your soul and there's bitterness at your position in the world and there's the sense that you're a victim and there's the anger that goes along with that and the desire to hurt like you have all of that and maybe you have it in spades maybe it's mostly what you are 
And because of that, you do not want things to be better. You want to spread some misery out of spite. And that's what chapter six is about, right? Put your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. It's about people like the Columbine High School shooters and exactly what they were motivated by. Because I understand what they were motivated by. And so to wish that things were better means that you have to make a real decision that despite all the flaws of existence, the suffering and the malevolence, that it's best not to become embittered by that and to work for the betterment of everyone. You, for sure. Your family, for sure. Your community, but perhaps even your enemies. You know, if you have any sense, you wish your enemies well. That doesn't mean you wish them victory. It doesn't mean you don't think they're wrong. None of that. It means that it would be better if the world was set up so that they didn't have to suffer miserably and futilely and evilly as well. That would be better. And so then you can aim at that. You know? And the best way to aim at that is, well, first of all, to aim at it, to actually sort yourself out and think, okay, well, if I could have things the way I wanted them to be, that's what I would want, right? And that takes a lot of psychological organization before you can state that without without what would you say without holding anything back you know because there's that part of you that bitter part that wants vengeance and wants and wants to to wreak havoc that's there it's hard to constrain that and then well the other part along with this as well as aiming at the highest good that's attainable let's say is to also decide that you're going to speak the truth in that endeavor and to risk that you know and there's that and because i think those are the things that that help you aren't yourself properly that's the message on the sermon on the mount by the way which is aim at the highest good that you can conceive of and act and tell the truth in that pursuit right the the other element there is to focus on the day once you've once you've aligned yourself with the heavenly star right aim high and then focus on the day that's very good advice because it also imbues everything you do in your daily life with significance as to why am i doing this to avoid hell that's a good one let's start with that it's like to avoid hell and if you have any imagination at all if you lived in the world at all if you're not naive you know what that means it's not just the hell that you encounter it's the hell that you foolishly produce around yourself and are then responsible for that's a perfectly good sort of hell so you want to avoid that for sure and maybe you want to dare risking making things better it's like that'll imbue your life with significance and and that significance you know one of the things i've discovered learned i would say over the last 25 years is that there's always been a mythological idea or an idea in literature and philosophy that there was a shining path, you know, that you could walk down. And modern cynical people believe that that sort of meaning, the meaning that would be obtained by walking on that path is somehow illusory or arbitrary. And I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever that that's true. I think that sense of meaningful engagement that what is revealed to you when you're in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing, that sense of deep engagement, that loss of self-consciousness, that feeling that things are worthwhile, that deep-seated feeling that things are worthwhile, that's the most real thing. I think, I think the neurobiological evidence suggests that. I really do believe that. And so we're in a fortunate time in some sense because we can look at those old metaphorical ideas of the, of the shining path, let's say, the... the the, the golden path forward and we can say 
yeah, that's actually real. It's real. And that's something. And then that's so, what's, what's so cool about that, in my estimation, is that, and this is why 12 Rules for Life is actually an optimistic book, is like the darkness is real, but the light is stronger. It's like, wow, could that be true? Could that possibly be true? I think it's true. So that's a good thing to know, man, that that might be true. And, and you know, the, when I was talking about my friend in the beginning of this podcast, that's, that's why I was talking about it, because it was a guy who had every reason to be, to be negative and to be dark and yeah. to look at the world and just say, this is hell and it's not worth it. But yeah. instead, what he really did was want to take care of his, of his friends. I talk about a woman in my book as a, someone I met as a client when I was just beginning my psychotherapeutic practice and she just blew me away i've never forgotten her so she was she had a horrible life she was unattractive uneducated um no career unemployed um so shy you can't even imagine it like you've met someone shy and anxious it's like they weren't in the same universe as Mm -hmm. this woman she was so shy that she couldn't walk up to people without looking at the ground hunching over and shielding her eyes so that's how she approached people on the street and and she 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 looked like a homeless person as well and so um and she came to the behavior therapy unit that i was working at and um hypothetically for treatment and so what what we started doing was seeing if we could get her to stand up a bit and look people in the eye more normally so that people wouldn't respond to her as if she was so peculiar you know so we were trying to just to change her behavior but I started talking to her and well she told me a little bit about her life it's like she lived at at her she lived where she lived her mother was I think she lived with her aunt who was like a violent schizophrenic alcoholic who had religious delusions and constantly accused her of being possessed by the devil and she had a really violent and abusive alcoholic boyfriend who used to mistreat this woman so that was like home life (laughs) it's like yeah and she had been an inpatient in this hospital the douglas hospital and that was in the 1980s and the douglas hospital was a huge hospital about the size of a university campus and it had had a lot of inpatients but they were all let out on the streets when medication became widely available and when deinstitutionalization was the norm but there was a subset of them who couldn't be deinstitutionalized and these were people that you can hardly imagine so i used to go in the underground corridors in the douglas hospital because it's very cold in montreal so there are underground corridors collecting the buildings and down there there would be vending machines and places for people to sit and it was like walking through dante's inferno because these were people who were so damaged you know they'd been in a psychiatric institution for maybe two or three decades they could not be released no matter what even though that's what the hospital was trying to do and so it was like Diane Arbus used to go across the United States and photograph strange people. And she has a whole collection of her photographs. They're quite arresting and, and shocking. And it was like walking through Diane Arbus's universe, you know. And so those were the inpatients. And she had been an inpatient from time to time, but was well enough so she could also go out. And it turned out she didn't actually want treatment. She had this dog. She used to take it for walks. And so that was her source of enjoyment, right? And she thought... I I really like this dog, and I really like taking it for walks, and maybe I could go to the Douglas Hospital and find one of these inpatients and take him out for a walk. Maybe that would be a good thing for him. And so the reason she had come to the behavior therapy clinic wasn't to treat all of her problems. And, like, this woman had problems, man. Everything about her life was a problem in, in ways that 
like a normal person just cannot begin to understand, you know, unless they're in one of those situations in their life where everything is collapsing around them. And what she did, what she decided was, well, there's someone worse off than me than me that I could help. It's like she just absolutely blew me away, you know. Mm. This poor woman, she had nothing going for her. Well, I guess she did, eh? Because she had this nobility of spirit that was absolutely indomitable. It just, I never forgot that. It just that blew me away. Does that somehow lead her into her situation in a way if she's so noble and she wants to help her her aunt that's all crazy and accusing no, no, her of that? No, and she I wants didn't. to help prop up her boyfriend that's violent and No, crazy. I don't think so. I don't think she wanted any of that. She was just one of these people. It's like, you know, you can put someone in a situation that's so dire that that there's virtually no escape from it. Like I've seen people in my clinical practice for whom things around things around them have collapsed so badly that there's just no fixing it. There's, you fix one thing and two other things break, and then you fix those and three other things break. There's just no bottom. And th- those are often families that have had multi-generational problems, deeply rooted. The whole community is pathologized. The entire family structure is demolished. P- their, their people don't have any marketable skills and they haven't for generations. The whole situation is complicated by drug and alcohol abuse and, and, and heavily biologically influenced insanity of one form or another, usually conjoined with relatively low cognitive ability. It's just, it's just hell no matter which way you turn. And I didn't see her as a contributor to that. I mean, I'm sure she made her mistakes like everyone else, but she was she certainly wasn't playing martyr or victim. Mm. She she didn't come into the to the clinic to complain to begin with, which is like she was just telling me these were the the situation that she lived in. She wasn't that isn't what she was there for. It's just that we thought she had come for treatment, so we were doing background analysis, you know, an intake interview yeah. and found out all these things. It's like any one of those problems is enough to bring most people's lives to a shuddering halt. And yet that was her vision. So the reason she had come to the hospital, and she didn't just come to the behavior therapy clinic, she'd gone around pestering administrators in the hospital to let her take the long-term inmates out for a walk. Now, they wouldn't do it for, you know, for all sorts of reasons, but that didn't stop her from thinking it was a good idea. And it, it actually was a good idea. Yeah. This was a practical idea. Right. Like she could have taken people out on the grounds because the grounds were huge and walked them with the dog. And it would have been fine was for Was there them. such a thing as pet therapy in 1985? No, so she was sort point. of ahead of yeah, her. Yeah, well, right, exactly. Exactly. But she had enough wherewithal to notice that, well, that she liked the dog and the dog liked her. And that, that was a good thing, yeah. right? A little bit of love in the world there and that there was nothing wrong with taking the dog for a walk and that was kind of harmless. And, why not have someone along? It's it like, made her feel good. She thought, well, maybe it'll make this yeah, other exactly, person feel good exactly, as well. Exactly. So like, you just got to shake your head. Well, that's when I really learned to begin with deeply that there's no correlation between intelligence and wisdom. Yeah. And, and that's actually the case, technically. Like, if you're smart, you can just be, like, you can be, you can be smart and good, but you can be smart and bad. It's oh, just that's as, it. yeah. That's it. Well, we used to say, okay, so we'd get these guys coming in the SEAL teams. That would be... <clears throat> For a while, we were recruiting just the, for the officer candidates, we were recruiting these guys that were, you know, they went to Ivy League schools and they were off the charts and 1600 on their SATs and then they were the captain of this and what, they were just these really high achievers. And we, we found that not all of them, but certainly some of them couldn't really function in the, as a, as a leader in the mm-hmm. job because they just didn't have the, 
I guess, the wisdom to, mm-hmm. to pull it off, but they couldn't mm-hmm. make the personal connections. They couldn't develop yeah. the relationships. Well, leadership's okay. a complicated thing, and it doesn't boil down just to intelligence. Yeah, and I don't want to make it sound like none of them were, because some right. of them were obviously outstanding, right. incredible leaders. But there were some of them that would be the same kind of recruit, but they just would be missing whatever piece mm-hmm. that was. Well, intelligence and character are definitely not the same thing. They're not the same thing. I mean, all things considered, if you're going to pick one of two leaders, if I would pick the smarter leader over the duller leader if all other things were equal, you know, because, well, because someone who's more intelligent can strategize more rapidly yeah. and can handle more variables, right? Yeah. And perhaps can even handle, a, well, can ha- handle a more rapid rate of transformation as well. And sometimes that's actually crucial. But character and intelligence are, are they're clearly not the same thing. And character is actually, well, I don't think anything trumps character. That's that. Character is everything. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's interesting that you, with this this woman that you talked about in the beginning, you talk about how she's, you know, she's crouched down and she's looking down at the ground and all that. So it's interesting. In your rules, obviously, the, the, the first the first rule is to stand up straight with your shoulders back, right? Well, when you get, for lack of a better word, indoctrinated. In fact, there is no better word. When you get indoctrinated in the military, that's exactly what's happening. And guess what? You get taught, one of the first things that you get taught is how to stand, how to stand properly. And you know what they tell you? Chin up, chest out, shoulders back. They make you stand like that. There's no coincidence to that, is there? Not at all, not at all. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, you could say it's a dominant stance, but I, that's not the right way of thinking about it. Although it is a dominant stance, the reason to adopt it is not because it's a dominant stance. It's a competent stance. And competence tends to make you dominant, at least in, in hierarchies that are functioning properly. Because you want, there are hierarchies, which is what I outline in chapter one. I say the hierarchies are old. They're not sociocultural constructions. They're not a secondary consequence of capitalism in the free market. All of that is absolute nonsense. It, it couldn't be more wrong. And as an indication of that, I point out that lobsters, whom we diverged from on the evolutionary front a third of a billion years ago have hierarchies, right? And that the neurochemical systems, the neural, neurological systems that lobsters have run on, that mediate their hierarchical status, run on the same chemical that the neurological systems that we use to mediate hierarchy run on. So that's just absolutely mind-boggling. But a lobster, like a victorious lobster, stretches out and right. adopts a more dominant pose because his serotonin levels go up as he becomes more and more victorious, and that governs posture. Well, and so to stand up straight with your shoulders back is to open yourself up to the world. You're not in, a def- you're not in the defensive crouch of a prey animal, technically speaking. And that is the circuitry that's governing posture. It's prey versus predator, something like that. And, and it, to stand up like that is to expose your, yourself to the world, but in a bring it on sort of manner, not, not precisely combative, but let's say courageous. And your posture announces that. And it doesn't just announce that to other people. It announces that to yourself. And it can start it can be one of those things that can start a virtuous cycle occurring, which is partly why it's taught in the military. You get these guys that come in, they're all slumped over, they don't know how to stand up, they're looking at their feet, their necks are bent. Like, Even if they're good-looking men, they don't look good because they're all crunched over. You see people like this on the street all the time. They could be perfectly attractive, except they're completely huddled in. You know, They need to stand up and stretch themselves out. And then they can breathe, too. And that's a competent stance. 
And one of the things that the, the critics of the modern West don't understand about hierarchies is that, first of all, they're everywhere. They're, they're inevitable. If you're going to have a distinction of value between things, you have a hierarchy. And if you, you don't want to get rid of the distinction of values between things because then you don't have anything to do. That's foolish. It's, you, you can't live that way. So I say, well, the hierarchies are based on power. It's like, no, they're not. They're based on competence. And there isn't anything more powerful than competence. But power isn't tyranny. It's not brutality. It's not threat. It might be the hint of all those things. You know, because I don't think you can be fully competent without being able to hint at those things. But hierarchies in the West are fundamentally based on competence. It doesn't mean they're not flawed, because we miss the mark lots. And there's lots of reasons why perfectly competent people don't attain the position that they deserve and that they should have for their benefit and everyone else's. The, the hierarchies are tainted by corruption, but fundamentally, they're fundamentally they're based on competence. So, and and that's so so with that, this first rule that you put in the book, and you're saying that's a cycle that can go backwards. So you don't have to have like the serotonin first, and then you stand up. If you stand up straight, yeah. you'll somehow increase your serotonin yeah, over yeah, time. Definitely, definitely. Well and you, you can signal actually, to yourself. Didn't you say you could inject lobsters with serotonin and they start to stand straighter? <laughs> yeah, you can or basically stand, give them but. antidepressants. So like if a lobster gets defeated in a fight, then he's statistically more likely to lose the next fight than you would guess from a tally of his previous victories. So that's the first thing. If you lose, you increase your risk of further loss. But if you win, you increase your risk of future gains. That's, that's a very important principle. It's a crucially important principle. It governs life. But yeah, if you take a lobster and he gets all defeated and he's off pouting and won't fight anymore because he's, you know, having a bad day and you inject him with serotonin, essentially give him antidepressants, it's the same thing, then he'll straighten up and he'll go out and have another scrap. It's like, and I read that, oh, I don't know, it's probably at least 10 years ago when I was reading about, well, the, the neurophysiology of these neurochemical systems. That's why I got onto it. It just it was another thing that just blew me away. I thought, really, you're kidding. That circuit is that old? It's like it's that old? Seri you know, that's way before there were trees. Eh? Yeah. That's how long ago that is. And so hierarchy is a patriarchal construction. H how about no? How about that's wrong? It's seriously wrong. So, so. I, had a, I was talking to one of my friends the other night. Uh, his name is Joe. He's got a kid that's wrestling. His kid is six years old, I think. Dom, and he says, you know, he's getting put into the higher category. He's kind of getting his butt whipped now, yeah. and I'm really not sure. What do you think? And I said, well, you want him to win because when he wins, it's more fun, and he has more fun. So now I have actual more evidence yeah, yeah. that you should get your kids in a position. Again, I think your kids should get beat sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but they should certainly not get beat down all the no, time. No, exactly. I did that to my kids when, when my kids first started jujitsu. I, I put them, oh, you're, you're going to compete because I'm telling you to. Yep. And then I'm going to put you in a higher weight class with older kids because that's going to make you tougher. That was yep. my yep. you know stupid thinking. Yep. And now with my youngest daughter, I'm like, no, no, no. You, you go out and you have fun. And you yep. go out and you compete against people that are somewhat equal to you, maybe a little bit below you, maybe a little higher. Yeah, but depending you're on win your mood sometimes. even. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, absolutely. What, well, that's... I think we could we could think about that also in terms of, of the conversation about meaning that we started to have. It's like, if you win all the time, that's meaningless. Because, well, and you think, why? Because you want to win. It's like, yeah, fair enough. So why would winning all the time become meaningless? It's because your theory of winning isn't sophisticated enough. Because here's how you win. You play the game to win, 
But while you're playing, you play in a way so that you get better at the game, right? Because you're going to play a bunch of games. Well, it's even more than that. You play the game to win, but you play it so that you get better at the game. Okay, fine. That makes sense. So you want to push yourself, right? Because that's how you get better. And so you need competition to push yourself. So you need to have the risk of loss because otherwise you won't do it. But here's an even better way of thinking about it. You play the game so that you don't only get better at that game, but you get better at the entire set of possible games. And that's what you do when you're a good sport. It's like, well, so how do you do that? Well, partly you, you find the proper level of competition, right? So you want to be pushed so that you will make the effort necessary to remove what's useless about yourself and to help foster the growth of what's useful. And if you do that, then you get the, the joy of participating in the game towards victory. But the extra joy of building yourself more and more strongly at the same time. And so when you tell your kid, doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Your kid says, what do you mean by that? And you say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I mean by that. Because the kid says, I'm supposed to win, aren't I? It's like, well, yeah. So why does it matter how I play the game? It's like, well, then you're stumped. Even though you're right, you just don't know why. Right. But the reason is, is you want to tell your, here's the reason. It's like, we can make this very simple. Life is not a game. It's a series of games. It's actually a series of diverse games. Okay, so who's the winner of the series of diverse games? Because that's the real question, right? Not who wins a game. It's like, whatever, you win a game. It's like, if I hold a gun to your head and we're playing chess, I can say lose. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I win. It's like, well, <laughs> that's not helpful, obviously. So you want to teach your kid, you want to help your kid learn to be the winner of the set of diverse games. Okay, so what does that winner look like? Well, here's the first clue. That's the person who keeps getting invited to play. You know, so... Because you win. If people invite you to play all the time, you have opportunities coming to you just nonstop. And maybe, like, let's say you have 50 opportunities and each of them are potentially 50% for you and 50% for the other person. You think, well, that's a pretty good deal. And then you think, well, wait a minute, let's flip this around. So it's like 60% for the other person and 40% for me. I'm going to be like, I'm going to go, I'm going to overboard in the generosity. You think, well, then what happens? Well, then instead of having 20 opportunities at every moment, you have like 50 opportunities at every moment. And that's, so, that's what you want for your kids, is you want all the invisible doors around them to open. And you do that by saying, play nobly, right? Pay attention to your teammates. Pass the damn puck so they get a chance, right? Even if you're the best player on the team, help the people on your team develop. Don't grandstand, right? Um, don't if you have the opportunity to beat your opponent 20 to 1, you know, in goals, it doesn't happen very often, but it can, especially when kids are playing. It's yeah. like, well, maybe after you're up 7 to 1, it's like, back off a bit. You don't have to humiliate your opponents. It's because it's, it's what would you say? It's uh, contemptible behavior on your part. And so, and you know that because you go and watch a hockey game or something like that, and you watch a kid that really knows how to play. It's like they're playing like mad to win. They're pushing themselves to be better, but they're paying attention to their damn teammates and they're, they respect their opponents. And you think, well, that's, that's a hell of a kid there. It's like, yeah, that's exactly right. That, that kid's going somewhere. Do, do kids ever show they get so committed, let's say hockey, right? You get a kid that's just so committed to winning in hockey that he's going to lose at other games. 
Well, that's that's other another problem. in life, right? Well, that, that's another. That, well, that's another problem. Is like so you could be overboard. Yeah. Well. Well, the other thing too is that with sports, like you could say, well, most kids aren't going to be NHL level hockey players. Like that's impossible. Like maybe you should aim for that. I would say probably not because it's so damn unlikely. But whatever. Some kids are going to manage that, and and more power to them. You say, well, what are the sports for for the rest of? the kids and the answer to that is well obviously there's the physical discipline and the, and the health that goes along with that and the ability to engage in and tolerate competition and learn how to be a gracious winner and a gracious loser but a lot of it is character that all that's part of character building well that's what you want is you say well why build your character it's like well how how about that's your set of toolkits for, for that's your set of tools for dealing with catastrophe how about that for a reason Right. So one of the things I've I've suggested to my viewers, this is the men in particular, but not just the men, um, you should be the most reliable person at your father's funeral. That's a good goal, man. That's a good goal because everyone's broken in a situation like that. And you adding to that brokenness and misery. I mean, you're going to be grieving, like no doubt about it. And, and no kidding. But there's a time to step forward with some character. You know, and it's the same thing. You're going to be at someone's deathbed. You're going to be quibbling with your siblings while you're doing that? While your parents dying? It's like it's bad enough that they're dying. That's tragedy, right? But you can turn that into hell, no problem. You just get a bunch of people with no character around a deathbed, and it's like, well, it's bad enough, but that turns it into something like hell. And that happens in people's lives all the time. It's like character is everything. So, and that's why the wise people of our past tradition insisted upon that. They say, well, don't lie. Well, why not? Well, it destroys your character. Well, so what? Well, then you turn suffering into hell. Is that what you want? Maybe, you know, because people will want that. But I would say, walk away from people like that, right? That's not, unless that's what you want, then... Yeah, and you've got a lot of, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting as I'm, since I just got done reading the book, you know, I can hear you just hitting the wave tops of all the different rules and they're all interconnected about don't, you know, don't lie or, or, or tell the truth or at least, at least don't, don't lie. lie. Yeah. And then, you know, hang, what's the, what's the chapter about? Hang around with people yeah. that want to see you do well. What's, yeah, exactly. what's the actual well, chapter? Yeah, yeah. Make friends with people who want the best for you. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's so, well, and it's a really, it's, it's a real technical idea. So. Carl Rogers, who's a psychotherapist, great psychotherapist, I'd, I'd very much recommend his books to people, especially if they want to learn to listen, because he was really good at teaching people how to listen. He had this idea that what he would manifest towards his clients in therapy was unconditional positive regard. And I've always had trouble with that because, well, because you don't treat your children, for example, with unconditional positive regard. You mean, There's so no conditions. matter what someone yeah. says, you're saying, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, well, that's, well that's, that's why it's tricky. Well, what he, what he, he didn't articulate it, I think, as well as he might have. What you want to do is, for your child, is that you want the best for the best in them. That's what you want. And that's what you want from people that you surround yourself with. Now, they'll hold you to a high standard if that's the case, right? Because whenever you degenerate in any of the multiple ways that you're likely to degenerate they're going to like whack you on the back of the head and say you know clue the hell in you know you're you're demeaning yourself you're less than you could be and there, there's real judgment in that and it's harsh mm -hmm. you know but with friends it's the same thing you want friends they're not friends if they're not these people you want friends who when something good happens to you they're that's good for you right 
They're happy about that. They're not like all bitter and resentful underground and like saying horrible things behind your back and telling you how they did something that was better and trying to drag you down. Yeah. It's like, that's not helpful. And then when something bad happens to you and you go to them and you say, look, this terrible thing happened to me. First of all, they don't try to top it with some like horrible thing that happened to them because <laughs> they don't have the patience to listen. And second, they're not secretly gloating about the fact that catastrophe finally befell you. Mm -hmm. It's like they're actually hurt by it. And th that chapter is an injunction. is like, take a look at the people that are around you. And if they're not on the side of what's good for you, then walk away because... Well, first of all, that's best for them, too. If you put up with that, all you're doing is enabling it. It's mm -hmm. like, well, it's okay that you mistreat me in a way that's harmful to me and everyone else. It's like, actually, no, that is not okay. It's not, in, it's not the least bit okay. That doesn't mean you shouldn't try to help someone when they're down. That's a whole different issue. What if it's your family? So you know how you say, like, walk away, right? Yeah. Do you still walk away from your family? Or do you kind of... You do if it's necessary. Yeah. There's lots of different ways of walking away. Oh, yeah, you know? like create boundaries. Well, there's that for sure. There's yeah. that. I mean, you, you, sometimes someone's on an incorrigible path. Yeah. Like, there's just nothing you can do. You know, maybe they're aiming down. Yeah. They're aiming down hard. Yeah. And they're bitter. And everything they do is to produce misery, virtually everything. Yeah. And you have to detach yourself from that. It's like I always think about it from the perspective of a lifeguard. So if you're training to be a lifeguard... One of the things that you're trained to do is to approach someone who's drowning and panicking. Mm. And the way you approach them is you put your foot out between you and them and you push forward with your hands with your foot out. Mm. And you basically tell them if they're flailing about, you say, look, I'm here to help, mm. but you have to calm down. And then if they cling to you, like in panic, you push them away. You think, well, that's pretty damn cruel because what if they drown? It's like, yeah, what if you both drown? That's like not helpful. You're, you're there to rescue them. They take you down. You're both dead. It's like fail, right? Yeah. So you say, look, quit panicking. I'll help you out, but I'm not drowning along with you. It's like, well, it's the same with someone in your family. It's like if they're on a downward path and you've done your best, you know, you've, you've made your efforts, you've, and they're not paying attention. They're not changing. They say, yeah, well, I'll quit doing this. Yeah, I'll quit doing this. They tell you the same story over and over and over. It's a downhill path. Mm. You don't trust it. At some point, first of all, you stop offering your words. That's do not cast pearls before swine. A very, very harsh statement, right? But what it means is if someone, if you're offering words of wisdom to someone in the genuine attempt to help and they treat that with contempt, then shut up mm. because you're demeaning your words by throwing them away. Mm. You think, well, how do you help someone who's aiming down? Yeah. Well, sometimes you help them by walking away and saying, look, you're aiming down so hard that I am, no despite the fact you're my brother, man, it's like, you know, this is killing me. You're aiming down so hard, I'm not coming along with you. And the reason I'm not is to tell you in no uncertain terms that what you're doing is so terrible that I will even violate our kinship to oppose it. Mm -hmm. And maybe it'll take them 10 years to wake up to that, mm -hmm. you know. And so that can be the case because, you know, people often have to be hit so many times before they'll learn. You mm -hmm. see that especially if someone's addicted yeah. or, or, or otherwise pursuing a pathway that's like seriously downhill. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
yeah, harsh. You, you, you cover that pretty well in that chapter where yeah. you're saying there's a certain point where you just got to say, no, nope, we're done. Yeah. We're done. We're done. Well, it's like, why should I think that you're actually trying to change? Maybe you're just telling me is you're you tell me the story that you use to justify your own idiocy to yourself. And then you tell it to me and you demand that because I'm compassionate, I accept it and therefore validate your excuse. It's like, well, that, like, it's really hard not to get tangled up in that, right? Because mm-hmm. if someone who's really in rough shape is telling you about why they're suffering, first of all, they're probably about half right in their story. Mm-hmm. But some of it's justification and excuse and blaming and all of that, failure to take responsibility. It's really hard to stand up and say, no, I don't buy that. No, I don't buy that. No, you're wrong about that. You have to be a brutal bastard in order to do that. But hey, sometimes like surgery is brutal, yeah. right? It's brutal, but... Yeah, we're going to cut you open and we're going to rip out part of your body yeah, or right, whatever. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Right, precisely. And so so this chapter about, you know, only making friends with people who want the best for you, that's a brutal chapter, you know, but it's right, unfortunately. Going to your book a little bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, pick up, going back to that first thought standing up means voluntarily accepting the burden of being your nervous system responds in an entirely different manner when you face the demands of life voluntarily you respond to a challenge instead of bracing for a catastrophe you see the gold the dragon hoards instead of shrinking in terror from the all too real fact of the dragon you step forward to Take your place in the dominance hierarchy and occupy your territory, manifesting your willingness to defend, expand, and transform it. To stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of life with eyes wide open. The reason I pulled that one out in particular is the feeling that you have as a soldier or as as a military person, the feeling that you have going on an offensive operation where let's say you're a bad guy and I'm gonna come and get you mm-hmm. at night. Well, first of all, you don't know, and I'm sneaking up on you, and I have all this power, right? I, I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get you. Mm-hmm. The opposite of that is when I'm doing a convoy or I'm going on a patrol where now the bad guys are out there, they're waiting to attack me, and that is a defensive posture, and your attitude about that type of thing is bad. Now, we would train our guys that we, we made a specific point with my guys, I would say, look, when you're on patrol, we're on offense. Mm-hmm. We are scanning. We are looking to get the to get us to be standing up straight and to get the mentality of we want to do this and we're moving towards the target as opposed to we're being chased. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. It, 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 yeah, absolutely. That's a big deal. Yeah. And, and that's that's what would you say? That's an extreme example of what's necessary under normal conditions in life. So one of the things that happens if you're treating someone who has a phobia, say like agoraphobia, so they become afraid of virtually everything. Um, Maybe they're afraid of an elevator. It's one of many fears. And so you think, well, and they're afraid of an elevator because they've actually gone in elevators and had panic attacks. So it's weird because what you do to cure them is to get them to go in elevators and you think well wait a second that's actually what caused the problem so how can getting them to do that again make it better and the answer is because they've gone in elevators their whole life right and yet they still become terrified so how can getting them to go in an elevator cure them for a long time people thought well 
you get them to relax while they were in the elevator and the pairing of the relaxation with being in the elevator taught them to not be afraid. That was the first theory. But then people learned that no, you could just get them to go in the elevator without having them relax and it also worked. And eventually psychologists sorted this out and what they figured out was that voluntarily encountering something you're afraid of is not the same thing as running from it. Like it's seriously not the same thing. So you say to the person, okay, you're afraid of the elevator. Let's can you go look at an elevator? And they usually say yes. And maybe they're so terrified because they're so far gone in their illness that they can't. You say, well, how about we look at a bunch of pictures of elevators? And it's like virtually everyone can do that. So say, let's look at pictures of elevators till you're bored. That actually doesn't take very long because it's actually quite boring. So then the next thing would be, well, let's go. You have to have the person trust you. And so the rule is, look, we're going to do some things that are going to push you like competition, right. but you can stop whenever you want and we're not going to push you any farther than is good for you. And I'll stop anytime you want. I often practice with my clients, like I taught one client a while back to not be afraid of needles and he was afraid of needles. And I'll tell you what that <laughs> meant. He had dental surgery with no anesthesia. Oh. Right. Okay, so that gives you some level of what it's like to be afraid. It's like, I'll do the dental surgery, but you're not putting that needle in there. It's like, really? Wow. It's like, I'm no needles. <laughs> so, so I taught him how to not be afraid of, of needles, you know, and it, it didn't take very long. But the first thing I did, I said, I told him I was going to bring a needle into the office. And that was all I told him the first week is next week, I'm going to bring a needle in here and I'm going to keep it sheathed. And it's going to be sitting on a shelf, and that's where I'm going to put it. And when you come in here, you can look at it. And if you want me to put it away, then I'll put it away. It's under your control. And then, so he was okay with that. So he came in. I said, there's the needle. He said, you want to look at it? He said, no. He said, but can you? It's like, I'll look at it. So he looked at it. And then he said, look, like, I'm going to pick up the needle. And now what you're going to do is you're going to tell me to put it down. And I'm going to put it down. So I picked it up. And he got nervous, like, right away. And... He said, will you put that down? I put it down right away. I said, we do that 10 times so that the bottom part of your nervous system actually knows that that's what's going to happen. He said, now, and then the next thing we'll do is we're going to practice you saying you've had enough and leaving the office. So I pick up the needle and he'd say, okay, so now you say you've had enough, I'm leaving. And so he said that and then I'd let him leave. We did that like 10 times so that he knew that he could just say he'd had enough and leave. So that meant he didn't have to be a prey animal, right? So we were getting him out of that mode. And it didn't take very long until, well, then I could bring the needle close to him. And I say, make sure you watch it. You can't pretend it's not there, right? I'll bring it close to him and touch it and touch him with the sheathed needle. So we did that a bunch. And then finally, I unsheathed it and I'd bring it close and he'd tolerate that or stop me. And then I'd touch him with that. And then the last part of it was that... Um, I put it under a piece of paper so he couldn't see it, and then I'd bring it close to him, right? Because that was, that was the unknown, right? You don't know what the hell's going on underneath the piece of paper. But he got to the point where he could go and have a needle. It took him about, it was very brave of him to do this because, well, what had happened, he got, what had happened to him is he had a very bad experience with the childhood dentist who held him to, down. I was about to say, yeah, where did down. this come oh, from? Oh, yeah, held him, six people held him down to give him a needle. It's mm. like, that wasn't, that wasn't so good. It had some long-term consequences. But see what happened. So when you, when you do that with people, you don't teach them to be less afraid. You teach them to be braver. Huh. That's different. And so, like, I had a client once, the doors opened on the elevator, and she looked in and she said, that's death. Like, that's a tube. And I thought, wow, that's an amazing response. And her idea was she'd go in there, her heart rate would accelerate, she'd have a heart attack, and she'd die. 
So as far as she was concerned, walking in there was death, death. right? Okay, so for me it was an elevator, but for her it was death. It's like, okay, well, what do you do about your fear of death? Well, we're not getting rid of that. It's like, you know, and you could die in the elevator. You actually could. Probably you won't, but people do die in elevators. And her idea was that, well, if anyone has ever died in an elevator in the history of mankind, that's a good reason for me not to be in the elevator. It's like, fair enough, you know. And why aren't you terrified of, out of your skull all the time? Because while you're wandering around, you might have a heart attack. Like that will probably, in fact, happen to you at some point. So why aren't you terrified of that at every moment? Well, that's the mystery. Well, so you treat people and, and you see with that client, what I eventually did with her is we went and watched an embalming. She was terrified of death, like date seriously. Night. Yeah, date <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times. Right, no kidding. But you know, so you, get, you don't get less afraid. You get braver. That's better because there's plenty of things to be afraid of. But you can get braver. So and that's can, something. Do people manage this on their own ever? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People manage it on their own. They manage it on their own all the time. Like, you know, let's say you're in a ratty, horrible job and you're being oppressed by your boss and one day you think, I've had enough, and you go write your resume. It's like, there you go. That's what you're doing. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, you're, you're... Because you think, well, I've got the devil I know and, and then there's the devil I don't know. And that's relevant when you're, when you're trying to switch careers. Can I find another job? Will anyone hire me? How long will this take? Do I have to get educated again? I have to put my resume together. That's a real pain because there's holes in it and I don't know how to present myself. Then I have to go to interviews and it's like, oh my God, that's, you know, that's a lot of trouble. Well, then you think, no, I'm, I'm going to start that. I'm going to rewrite my resume. It's like, well, then up you get, right? Mm -hmm. Just you're moving forward in your life. You're not taken being tyrannized by your son of a bitch of a boss and you're out to do something about it you know and people can get really good at that so one of the things you do as a psychotherapist is, is to, you do assertiveness training it's like so people come and they say help help i'm being oppressed in the famous monty python in the famous monty python manner and you say okay look well first of all you're probably whining a lot so let's figure that out so you quit whining and then let's figure out how you actually are oppressed and what might be done about it and then let's figure out a strategy and then let's help you practice the strategy until you get good at it and, and let's also map out the consequences of not fixing it. Because people think, well, how can I stand up to my boss? It's like, yeah. that's terrible. I might I risk my job. It's like, yeah, fair enough. No wonder you're afraid of that. Maybe you should just shut up. Let's see what your life would be like in 10 years if you just shut up. It's like, you know how bad it is now? It's like, it's going to be way worse than that because you're going to shrink and shrink and shrink and your boss is going to become more and more tyrannical and you're going to hate every minute of your life. And it's like, you want that or do you want to confront your boss or change jobs? It's like, oh, I see. It's like hell here. It's hell here. I get it. I get to pick which of those I'm going to walk down. And that's a relief to people most of the time. It's so funny because... People often think they have, they're, they're paralyzed because they think that there's a good option. Right, right. Right? Yeah. But one of the things you do as a psychotherapist is to say, oh, no, you, no, no, you're screwed. No matter which way you turn, it's, it's like a crocodile here and it's a wolf there and, mm. and behind you there's a hyena. It's like there's no lambs. You're not in lamb territory. Right. It's all predators. Well, pick your battle. Pick your battle. And then all of a sudden you're in the battle. And then... It doesn't matter that it's a hyena because you're a warrior. So fine, bring it on. It, it, this is uh, coming to another point that I, I picked up from the book that 
I, I have a leadership and management consulting company, so I work with companies all the time. And one of the topics that's come up a bunch in the past couple of years is, you know, when you're when you're dealing with someone, you're dealing with an employee, and you got to fire them, and how this is a big hard conversation, and, and et cetera, et cetera. No one wants to have those. And I always say, look, if you have the hard conversation earlier, mm-hmm. it's not so hard because all I have to tell you is, hey, Jordan, you know, you were late today, and you, we're not supposed to be late, and you go, oh, sorry. Right. And the problems mm-hmm. sorts itself out, or or it doesn't, and then then I got to escalate. Yeah. But what you talk about in the book is, if there's a problem, go attack it. You mm-hmm. go get that problem solved. Mm-hmm. Don't go after that dragon. Well, you know well, the dragon's in there. Go get it. Well, your observation is dead on. It's like, and this is the problem with being too nice. Like I don't regard nice as a virtue, or if it's a virtue, it's a very low order virtue. Because what nice <laughs> usually <laughs> means, what nice usually means is. I don't want to cause conflict now, even though the consequences of the conflict might multiply into the future. So let's say you have an employee that's chronically late, right? And but you, uh, I don't want to. I don't really want to disturb them. I don't want to cause any trouble. It's like, well, you're angry about it because they're late and they're not supposed to be. So you're getting all bitter and resentful. Plus, you're not doing them any favors, you know, because you're also telling them that you can be taken advantage of and that their lack of discipline is okay. And then. You know, so then you're going to dislike the employee, and you're going to amplify their other errors in your because of your distaste. And then, and if they are someone who's taking advantage of you, then they're going to take advantage of you a little more, and then a little more, and then a little more, and a little more. And then you're going to have to have a really difficult conversation or put up with it, and that might sink your business, especially if you're a small business owner. So by not confronting the dragon when it's like two inches high and can only, you know, it's, it's like it, it can belch out something like a big lighter. You wait until the thing can inflame the whole room. And then you say, oh, my God, like, isn't this hellish? It's like, well, you knew that there was something to say. You knew it. You knew it a thousand times. And now you can't just say the one thing. You have to say the thousand things. Yeah. Or maybe you have to say the 10,000 things. And it's just destructive in every way. So, yeah, that's not good. Now, not here's good. where I need help with this so where i think people might get the idea is okay if i'm in a relationship with my wife and she gives serves me dry chicken again right which is which is a common theme in my household (laughs) and actually thanks to the internet it's actually changed now because she's gotten thousands of people that have now sent her how to keep the chicken moist so she does a great job but for for um you know we're talking about two decades of my life we're yeah. talking about dry chicken yeah. this yeah. is a problem yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, so it's and you know what i did i didn't say anything because i i just would drink more water yeah <laughs> more water at dinner yeah i i fear that sometimes people say well you know what i'm gonna do is so i'm just gonna run around and i'm gonna tell the truth to everyone all the yeah. time on these little things that don't matter yeah. now yeah. my my yeah. My actual best example that I've ever heard of this, we, we had a guy on the podcast named Charlie Plum. He was a pilot in Vietnam. He was shot down in, um, in, on his last mission of his deployment. He was shot down, he was captured, he was in the Hanoi Hilton for six years. This is the deal that they had amongst their roommates. So they had roommates in a room smaller than we're in right now. And there'd be four of them in there, three of them in there, two of them in there, depending on what was going on. If you did something that annoyed me, if Jordan does something that annoys me, we got to live together. If you do mm-hmm. something that annoys me, it's my fault. Mm-hmm. It's my fault for mm-hmm. allowing you clip, click, click your nails together or you pick mm-hmm. your nose a lot or you itch your head. Whatever it is that you do that bothers me, it's my problem and I have to absorb it. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise what we have is we have like rats in a cage that are going to gnaw each other apart. And, and I thought about that 
while I was reading the part of the book that was saying, and you actually also later in the book talk about, hey, you know, are you going to get a fight over this little stupid thing or are mm-hmm. you going to absorb? And I talk about that a lot as a leader, yep. as, a, as a person in a relationship. Hey, there's problems from your boss. You absorb them mm-hmm. and you don't pass them down to your people. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you mm-hmm. want us to stay work and or stay late and do a bunch of crazy stuff that we don't think we should be doing. Cool. My guys are going to go home. I'm going to absorb that. I'll get it done myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to absorb these problems. Now, are there some tertiary effects, of course, or secondary effects that now my boss thinks he can get away with that and all those things. But I just think there's, we have to be careful that we're not just throwing oh, definitely. Uh, spears of truth in people's oh, yeah. heads well, I think on a regular are, basis. Those are yeah, black yeah. truths. They're the opposite of white lies, right? So black truths are truths you use to hurt other people with, uh. right? And so technically, in the moment, the statement is factual, but the context belies it, right? Whereas a white lie, it's like, well, it's a little lie, but you're trying to support a larger truth. Not that white, white lies aren't optimal, you know, it's better not to lie, but sometimes the best you can manage is a white lie. And then maybe Chicken that's better. pretty good. Well, okay. So then in those sorts of situations, you think, well, first of all, I have some rules of thumb. If someone does something at work that annoys you, it's like, write it off, man. It's like, that's once. It's like, what does that mean? You're having a bad, you're having a bad day or I'm having a bad day. It's like, it doesn't mean anything. Do it twice. It's okay. I'll write that off. Write that off. It's that's it's the same issue. It could still just be circumstance and situation. Three times. Okay, now there might be grounds for a conversation. You go and say, well, you know, you put your feet up on my desk like a day ago, and that was okay, but then you did it again, and then like you did it again. And I'm thinking, it actually happened three <laughs> times, right? So there's no denying it. And perhaps that's not optimal. And then you go for the smallest possible victory. That's the next thing is like, I'm not telling you that you're, what would you say, that you lack respect or that there's something wrong with you. What I'm asking is that if you come in my office, it would be better for both of us if your feet stayed on the floor. Is that okay? (laughs) You know, and... And that's a small thing. You're not going after the person's character, right? You're going after the tiny victory. So you say to your wife, look, like, I'm thrilled to death that you're cooking me dinner. <laughs> really, I'm serious. because, And it could be a hell of a lot worse than it is. You know, and, and maybe I could be more helpful around the kitchen. That's certainly a possibility. But I have got this thing with regards to chicken. And maybe it's me, you know. <laughs> but could we try for like a month? to cook it differently, and then we'll revisit it. And if I happen to be wrong, like, I'll shut the hell up. And she might think, okay, well, he is kind of useless around the kitchen and sort of bitchy about the chicken and all of that, but maybe I trust him enough to admit that I made a small mistake and rectify it, and we could go along and not have the damn chicken thing hanging over our heads till we're 80, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, you just, in your second example there, you, I, I tell people this all the time. So you, you're coming into my office and you're putting your feet on yep. the desk. What I'll generally do is make it my fault. Mm-hmm. I'll generally say, hey, Jordan, I hate to be like a nitpicker, yeah. but I'm really freaked out about germs. It's really stupid, but yeah. I am. And when you come in and put your feet on my desk, it freaks me out. Can yeah. you just do me a favor and, and not put your foot on, your, on well, my desk I when think- you come here? And the same thing with yep. you know with the chicken. It's like, hey, you know what? I have a super sensitive palate. Refined. And I, yeah, it's a super refined <laughs> sensitive palate. I'm just too palate. refined I'm for sorry, your damn chicken. <laughs> but, and, and I just... 
Yeah, could we maybe figure out another way to cook that, or, or could we try? <laughs> you know, but I'll take the blame for for the situation rather than you're you're disrespectful and don't put your feet on my desk. This is well, that, you that, don't want to adopt uh, more of a position of moral superiority than yes. is absolutely necessary. <laughs> One of the things I recommend, I don't remember if I wrote it in Twelve Rules for Life. I think I did about how to. Let's say you're in an intractable argument with your wife about who's the most reprehensible person, right? Which is where arguments sort of end when they go to hell. (laughs) I think now you're in one of those arguments and you risk bringing up the past, which is a very, very bad idea, right? Maybe you're saying something like, you've always been this way, you're this way now and you'll never change and none of it's good. It's like, oh man, that's a fight because where where are you going to go from there? So one of the things I recommend, and this actually works, is when you're in one of these battles and you can't bloody well get out of it, you separate, each go to your room, and you sit and think, okay, that person is really wrong, and I'd like to give them a good stomping. And, but then you think, no, i got to live with them. So that's probably not a good idea, right? Because I don't want to live with someone who's, like, stomped and angry about it because they're going to take their revenge, like, if they have any spirit at all. So you cannot win an argument with your wife. That's just wrong. You can't. You can make peace. You can come up with a solution. But if you win, she loses, and then she's the loser. And, like, unless you want to have a loser around that's not a very good strategy anyway so you go to your room and you think okay fundamentally flawed as my wife is particularly in this particular (laughs) circumstance there's probably something stupid i did in the relatively recent past that increased the probability that we're in this little hellish place and you think ah what was it and you think oh god i really don't want to know it's like i really don't want to know this and so you think no i'm gonna figure out where I'm 1% at fault. She's 99% wrong, but I'm, I, I'm 1% right. at fault. So you sit there and you think, okay, what was it? And then you let your imagination sort of wander over your past stupidities and you think, oh, there's something I did that was like kind of underhanded and devious and crooked and pathetic and weaselly. And, <laughs> and then you go and you tell her and she does the same thing, yeah. you know, and she's just as irritated about it as you are. And then you think, okay, and you say, look, I'm sorry about that. And I know this increased the probability that we're in this like bitchy, horrible place. And she does the same thing. And then you think, oh, yeah, well, we're both pathetic losers and we can quit playing like dominance hierarchy. And then maybe you can have a conversation about how to make it better. And that conversation should be bounded, too. It's like the chicken thing is a really good. <laughs> my, my father-in-law, who I really like, he used to come. My, my wife told me this story. <laughs> he used to come home for lunch, eh? And his wife would feed him lunch. And she always used little plates. And it was like they'd been married for 30 years. And one day he had this explosion at the table <laughs> about the fact that he'd, he'd had to eat off these damn little plates for 30 years. And, you know, it was much more of a large explosion than it had to be. But it's these little things actually matter. Eh? They actually matter. You have to straighten them out because your life, especially with your wife, is composed of about 50 little things that you do every day. Mm-hmm. And because you do them every day, they're not little. Mm-hmm. You, you can just do the arithmetic, you know. It's like maybe you don't like the way your wife greets you when you come home. It's like, okay, is that relevant? Is that important? Well, let's say it takes 10 minutes because you're thinking about it and you're coming home and then there's the little aftermath. It's 10 minutes. So it's like an hour a week. It's four hours a month. It's 50 hours a year. That's one work week. It's 2% of your life. It's like 2% <laughs> of your life, right? So that's the math. It's like... If you got 50 of those things right, your whole life would be right. 
think, is it worth fighting about? It's like, yeah, it's worth it because it's two percent of your life, or what's one percent even, whatever. And then you think, okay, well, how should people greet themselves when they first come home? It's like, well, maybe it's not quite like your dog greets you because your dog is like reprehensibly happy to see you. That's just too much, right? Little kid will do that, but maybe you want the person to not be watching TV. For the second you enter the house, maybe they should just stop watching TV and come and say, you know, hello, how was your day? And give you a hug. That would be a good thing. And then maybe you do the same thing to them. And you practice that for like two months because you're both stupid and it's really hard for you to learn anything. And then you've got that down. And the, the dinner times are like that too. Like in lots of households, meal times are really fractured, which is a bad thing. Or they're bitter. It's like, I'm here's your... Goddamn food. It's like, yeah, I'll eat it, but I can't stand it and you can't cook. It's like, okay, that's four and a half hours a day, right? For your whole life. You think you're going to like someone like that? Not a bit, man. You're not going to like them. Yeah. So you fix that. You, you actually do, did tell that whole thing in the book, so that's it's good. It's in there. And, and actually, the phrasing that you used when you say if you win an argument, you said something along the lines of you, you, win, you win that argument, they're the loser. Yeah. Now you win that argument a hundred times. Now in a marriage, you win yeah. ten thousand times, and you are now married to, to a, a loser. loser. And that loser, that loser is not going to be someone who makes any effort whatsoever ever to be attractive to you or anyone else. Yeah. And then you'll think, oh look, 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 look who I ended up with. It's like, no, look at how you produced. It's like good work there, guy. <laughs> and, and and that's the that's the so so what you're talking about with this argument thing and you look go you know, you separate, you go in your room and you say, Okay, what did I do wrong? Yeah, what right? did I do wrong? That's annoying. What did I do wrong? And and interestingly, myself and my my, my buddy Leif Babin, we wrote a book called Extreme Ownership and, mm-hmm. and the whole premise is you take responsibility for when things go wrong. You say, Yeah, this was my fault. So I'll go to clients and I'll be meeting with them. And I'll say, you look, when you, something goes wrong with your team, you, know, you guys made a mistake, you fail at whatever you're trying to accomplish, you know, you got to take ownership of it. You stand up and you say, hey, look, this was my fault. And this is what, you know, we're going to do. And the, and the people will say, well, you know what? If I did that, my team is so bad yeah. that if I did that with my team, you know what they'd say? They'd say, you're right. It is your fault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and they look at me like, well, the, so, so your plan, Jocko, sucks. Because yeah. if I say this is my fault, my team is going to look at me and say, you're right, it is your fault. Mm-hmm. And then what do I do? And I, I kind of get a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit frustrated because I, I look at them and I say, that's the whole point. It actually is your fault. It, you're not just saying it to get out of the, the, the problem. You're not just saying it to make excuses for everything that's happening. No, when you say, hey, this is my fault that we got in this argument, and then, and then your wife says, yeah, it is. You don't say, no, 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 no. No, you say, I know. And, you, yeah, and you the have key to mean part it. is, you say, I know, and this is what I'm going to do to fix it. And if you're a leader and you say it's my fault and your team says, yeah, you're right, it is your fault, you say, I know. That's what I just said. And here's what I'm going to do to fix it. So when you take ownership of a problem, it doesn't necessarily make the problem go away. In fact, it doesn't do that at all. Mm-hmm. Once you admit what the problem is and you take ownership of the problem, then you have to say, here's what I'm going to do to fix it. Here's my well, let's new say, plan. Let's say you're a high school kid and you've got a tyrant as a teacher. It's like, well, you could. it could be the case that you have a tyrant as a teacher. And the tyrant is particularly on your case. And you think, well, yeah, that's an awful thing. And this person really is a tyrant. It's like, yeah, but you're not very good at dealing with tyrants. And you might think, well, I shouldn't have to be. It's like, fair enough, man, because who wants tyrants? But the truth of the matter is, is that there is always tyranny. 
And if you don't know how to deal with it, if you don't know how to thrive in the face of tyranny even, then there is something wrong with you. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't something wrong with the tyrant. It's like that's self-evident. But it does mean that you aren't who you could be because if you were everything you could be, you could manage that situation. And it might be you'd figure out an exit strategy. I mean, who the hell knows what the solution would be. But if you if you are conceiving yourself as helpless victim, then that's what you are. And, and I'm not saying that there aren't situations that people find themselves in where there's very, well, it's hard to say, you know, that there's very little you can do. I mean, that g- woman that we talked about earlier, she was in a pretty damn hopeless situation and she found something she could do. You know, and I've read these books, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning and Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. I mean, he saw people in some pretty damn dire straits, like really, I mean, really beyond comprehension. And he noticed even in those situations that people still had their choices to make, you know. And I mean, you, you, you tread on that ground with extreme hesitancy because you don't say, well, man, if I was thrown in the gulag, I would have been noble. It's like, no, probably mm-hmm. not, man. You would have been a trustee in about 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, that's the most likely outcome. So you have to be careful about not getting too high on your horse about such things. But it isn't obvious when you're out of choices. Most of the time you have more choices. You haven't used all the choices you have most of the time. Now, I've seen people in situations I couldn't help them get out of. So, and people die, right? I mean, you have a fatal illness, you have pancreatic cancer, like you're dead in six months. Your choices are limited. But maybe under those circumstances, you figure out how to put your house in order and be what you can to the people who will be left. It's something like that. Uh, from For me, and I get a lot of, and I know you get infinitely more than me, but I'll get someone that reports to me a problem or a situation that they're in that seems really bad and and what i've found is the the solution that they're looking for the only solution that they can conceive of is one that is going to provide that solution within a two-week time frame mm-hmm. like that's what we're talking about if i'm not so- if this problem isn't solved in two weeks then you know this is hell mm-hmm. and and i always kind of report back and say hey you're here in a job right now that I understand it's bad. I understand it's your boss is terrible. The team is terrible. The whatever the case is, what or you're in a situation, or your family is this, or whatever. So conceive a plan right now, and it's not going to take two weeks. Mm-hmm. It might take six months. It might take a year. It might take a year and a half of you saving your money oh, yeah. and setting your resume and getting the other skills mm-hmm. that you need. If you can, if you can extend your time, and I'll tell you what, when you when you come up with that plan, when you conceive of that plan, immediately you have hope. Mm-hmm. And when you have hope, you can continue on through the miserable existence that you're in because you know that you're gonna, you've got a plan and you're going to get your way out of it. Absolutely. Well, I, I had a client recently because I've done a lot of consulting as well as clinical work and often my clients come to me. They're high-functioning people. They have decent jobs. But, you know, we make a plan. It's like, well, I'm making $75,000 a year right now, the person says. I said, well, how much? Well, okay, we're going we're gonna to prove that. Like, why don't we see if we can triple that? See if we can triple it. It's like, what the hell? You know, maybe we can't, but maybe we can. Some people do make triple that. Could be you. Okay, so what's wrong with you? Well, you know, you're not educated enough. All right, so we need to fix that. Your resume isn't in order. Um, You're not sending the damn thing out. It's like, well, then you've got to do baseline statistics. It's like, well, how many times do you have to send out your resume to, to move ahead when you're already in a pretty decent job? Well, the answer isn't 10. The answer is like, you have to send out five a day, every day for the next two years. And the, the 
rejection rate will be so close to 100% that that's what it will feel like, right? But it's a lottery ticket. You only have to win once, so it doesn't matter. If you, if you lose 300 times, it doesn't matter. You just need one hit. So now you've got to prepare yourself because it's going to be brutal because you're sending out all these, you know, resumes to jobs you're not quite qualified enough for because you're looking to move up. Brace yourself, right? It's going to be nothing but failure. Nothing but failure. Well, in this particular client, I think it took her two years, maybe more, two and a half years of sending out resumes and accelerating her education and, and practicing because she'd get an interview now and then and get very close to it to get that first move, right? But then she got two more in the next year and she was at triple her salary. But, you know, it's like long-term strategic thinking followed by an implementable plan and then the willingness to tolerate an insane run of ridiculous failures before you move. But I've seen that happen to people. There's no reason that you can't move. You just have to figure out where you want to move you have to figure out what the criteria are for putting you in that position. And then you have to be some measure of insanely persistent because it's so unlikely, right? The, the default answer to the question, can I have this good job is, are you out of your mind? <laughs> of course not. Right. right. Well, it is. It's like, and even if you're qualified, it's like, yeah, you and 10 other people. Yeah, yeah. So there's even an element of chance at it, especially at the end. You know, like if you're in the top five, You've done everything you can can do to control that outcome. Yeah. There's some element of chance that's going to be the determining variable because, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe they didn't like the way your suit looked on you and that's the only thing that's differentiating you from the other candidate. It's like you also don't want to take that too personally. It's like, well, you hit the top five, you were shortlisted. You're in there, man. You're in there. You're in the game. Do that 10 times, you'll win one of those contests, but you got to do it 10 times. Mm. So, and you know, even in, in lower end jobs, like I, I've, I, I've worked in lots of lower end jobs. We talked know? about uh, dishwasher yeah, last time you were dishwasher, on. exactly. You, you and I share a, a strong kinship yeah. of dishwasher. Yeah, yeah, well, I, you know, I was dishwasher <laughs> for a while, but then I was a short order cook. Yeah. And you know, but more than that, more importantly than that, even while I was a dishwasher, once I kind of got the hang of it, which was a lot harder than you might think, um, once I got the hang of it, I was valued member of that team. It's like, well, you're a dishwasher. It's like, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that I'm valued member of this team. And that was actually fun. Like, I was just a kid, you know, I was 14. And I was, I did my job properly, and I got treated like an adult. It was like, I loved that. I loved that. That was great. And so the fact that I was, well, are you a dishwasher or are you a 14-year-old adult? Hey, I'm a 14-year-old adult. Hey, I win. I win that. <laughs> Dishwasher, no dishwasher. It's like, that's a good game. And I really did like that. I mean, when I look back in my mid-adolescence, it's certainly the case that the, the times that were the best for me was when I was working in restaurants. Because I was, I was part of the team, man. So you, you, One of the sections in the book, you talk about, um, I believe the person's name was Lunchbox? Lunch Bucket. Lunch Bucket. Lunch Bucket, <laughs> right. Poor old well, Lunch you know, Bucket. Since we're talking about yeah. work environments, and there's that certain level of camaraderie, and you actually talk about the SEAL teams in here, yeah. where you just have this, it's like a non, and I've talked about this before, in the SEAL teams, it's non-stop, hyper-verbal 
abuse, aggression, around the clock, 24 hours a day. You're in a SEAL platoon. Yeah. Like, that's the that's life. Yeah. Any any mistake that you make, any any display of weakness is going to be Especially pounced upon and weakness. ripped apart. Oh, oh yeah, it's, it's going like, to be ripped apart. Yeah, yeah. And then if you get all irritated about that, it's oh. even worse, man. Then <laughs> oh. you're just dead. The nicknames, you, you talked about lunch bucket. Your nickname was Howdy, Howdy Doody, Howdy yeah, Doody, and then it got shortened to Howdy, which was yeah, was, which was you better. felt pretty good about. It was better, <laughs> yeah, because you went from Howdy Doody, which is kind of yeah, was so good. To Howdy, which is kind of cool, right? Yeah. As a Western guy, yeah, whatever, right, right, right. But but the nicknames that 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 are in the SEAL teams, like I can't with good conscience repeat them. <laughs> I'm sure that's because true because they're just they're just horrible, yeah, horrible yeah, names. Yeah, yeah. But there's a camaraderie around that, and there's also the as I was reading what you had written about these guys working on a railway railway crew, yeah. There's a test. It's a test. Yeah, yeah. It's a test to see where you're at, That's what right. you're made of. That's right. Can, can we rely it? on can, you? Can, can you re- can you tolerate a little bit of irritation? If the answer to that is no, it's like, well, maybe we don't want you around then, because some irritating things are likely to come down the pipe. Yeah, and it's it's not just um, it, it, to me. To me, it proves if you've got someone that can take it, right? It's not just that they can take some random joking insults. Like they can. They can, can take it. They can take it. Yeah, that's what you're testing for. Yeah. It's like, can you take it? Lunch bucket couldn't, right? Because people would laugh at his lunch bucket and he'd get all upset. It's like, well, you have a stupid lunch bucket. It's like, you know, your mom packed it. How about it? you laugh at yourself? Yeah, my mom packed this. I know it's kind of stupid. That would have been the end of it. He would have just had to say that. Yeah. It's like, but I didn't want to hurt her feelings. It's like, oh, okay, you know, yeah. fine. You got your stupid lunch bucket. And, but no, he couldn't handle that. <laughs> You know, so yeah, it was it was horrible and comical to watch at the same time because the level of and people have written me about that and they said, oh, you know, poor lunch bucket. It's like because they're all compassionate. I think no, no, not poor lunch bucket. It's like, clue the hell in, buddy. You yeah. had your chance. You know, that was a desirable job, that rail crew job in the summer because it was high paying. You know, and it, they weren't easy to come by those jobs. And so the fact that he got hired onto that crew was a real opportunity for him. You could make a pile of money in the summer at working on the rail crew, and all you had to do was. Take some ribbing with good grace, not suck up to the management too badly, and not have other people do your job. That was all. That was all you had to do. But he couldn't do that, and so he got run off. And it was like, grow the hell up, buddy. You know, these guys, when 100 people are teasing you, then probably they're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, when you are getting teased like that as well, well, when you when you when you stop reacting, it's no longer fun. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. That's well, it actually, also gives you an opportunity to tease back. It's like because yeah. you can show your wit. And one of the things that working class guys, in particular, which is what one of the things I really loved about working class jobs, is they're they're always looking for some humor. So it's like <laughs> if if person A is teasing person B, that's kind of comical. But if person B comes back with a good comeback, it's like that's even better, you know? So I think that's a lot of how those jobs are rendered tolerable, right? It's they're they're hard, dirty jobs. Right. Dishwasher's a good example of that. It's not dangerous. Although cooking is is you know, you gotta watch your step. I got burned a lot when I was cooking. Um but what makes those jobs not only tolerable but even desirable is that you can develop a tremendous amount of camaraderie around them. I've never really experienced that at a professional level job. That just doesn't happen the same way. And it's really, there's a real loss in that. So it's, it's, it's fun to be part of a team that's doing, you know, grubby hands-on things and, and having a ridiculously entertaining 
vicious, cruel, and evil time while you're doing it. That's very entertaining. <laughs> the uh, This new kid's book I wrote. So uh, the kid, Mark, he's getting made fun of by this. He's a different kind of bully. He's like a mental bully mm -hmm. that, that verbally abuses people. And he gets called plate face by this character. And to... And eventually he gets in trouble for throwing something at the kid because he's calling him plate face, plate face. But eventually the way he befriends the kid is by mm -hmm. he they have to do a self-portrait in class and he draws a picture of himself looking like a plate. Mm -hmm. And he shows it again, the kid laughs and all of a sudden they're buddies. And it's mm -hmm. like, that's what you do. You take away that, you take away the joy of of being so heated <laughs> and irritated by people that are making fun of you and you just kill it right Jiu -jiu there. Jiu-jitsu in some sense. Yeah, well, yeah. I had an experience with that about three years ago, I put my videos up online and people kept saying that I sounded like Kermit. <laughs> and I thought, well, one person said it and I thought, well, whatever. But then like five people said it and I thought, oh my God, like this Kermit thing. So then I went and listened to Kermit and I thought, oh no. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, really, I really sound like Kermit, you know? And so then, well, then I started to play with it a little bit, you know. I used the puppet, and mm -hmm. when I when I when I went to speak to university students, and I made frog jokes, and then I made a vid, I made a couple of videos <laughs> that sort of featured me as a frog, and I mean it's crazy, right? It's ridiculous, but but that's and but but the teasing never got mean because of that, you know. Yeah. And the same things happened online to a larger degree as people keep making memes of me, like and there's I don't know, there's lots of them. There's way too many to even keep track of. And <laughs> I was watching that happen and I thought, okay, this is a good thing because there's humor and wherever there's humor, that's a good thing. And they're making fun of me, but it's gentle. You know, most of it was pokey, mm -hmm. you know, like, well, you sound like this damn puppet. What do you think of that? It's like, well, if I had to pick someone to sound like, it probably wouldn't be a puppet. But if it had to be a puppet, Kermit's not a bad one. It could be a lot worse. Like, it could be Miss Peggy. It could have been that, you know, so thank God that didn't happen. But the memes have never got vicious because, you know, I'll post them if they're funny and satirical. And then they won't get vicious because they don't have to. It's like, can we poke fun of, at you? It's like, yeah, please do. And mo the more the better, really, because th that'll also help keep my feet on the ground and keep me awake. And plus, it's funny. And like, one of the things about life is that a sense of humor, that's a good thing to, to arm yourself with because sometimes you just don't have anything other than that. Like my daughter, when she recounts her the horrors of her adolescence. She, she had to have her hip and her ankle replaced because they both deteriorated beyond repair, beyond the possibility of repair. And she was like in agony for literally for years. It was just awful. She can tell that story in a way that will just make you die of laughter. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, thank God for that because what else do you have in a situation like that, man? If you, if, and sometimes it's so dark that your sense of humor is just about gone and then you're in real trouble. But mm -hmm. lots of times that's what you've got against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. It's like <laughs> you see this with people, especially people who've been through really hard times and that are witty, like things will be bleak, 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 and they'll crack a joke and you think, well, thank God, man, you can pop up above that and see above it a bit and, and like, you know, tap it with a bit of irony and thank God for that. So when the comedians start to get silenced, there's real trouble. And that's been happening to some degree in Canada. And, you know, comedians are increasingly not willing to go speak on university campuses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. eh? And that's when the comedians can't talk, that's a really bad sign. Because that's the, that comedy, that's the triumph of the human spirit over <laughs> adversity, right? That's yeah. why guys in these horrible jobs are often so unbelievably funny. It's like, well, what else do they have? You know, and, and actually, that's a lot to be funny like that. That can, that can move you through a lot of dismal. So, 
you know, I, I, I'm paying attention to time because I know in case someone can't tell that we're by an airport right now. But to kind of bring this a little bit too close. First of all, we didn't cover anything that I wanted to cover today. So we should all know that. So you're coming <laughs> I back I often again. do that with my talks. It's like, oh, that's not the talk I planned. Well, yeah, your first biblical talk, you yeah, covered no. the first line of Genesis, right? You made it one line deep in <laughs> yeah, two and a half I know, hours. I know, I know. Well done. Well yeah, done. Yeah. I thought, oh, yeah. But one of the things, and I think it's a good note to end on at least a little bit to touch on, because you're kind of talking about it right now, is, you know, the last rule is to, to pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Yeah. It's basically f- find a little bit of joy in these common things. You bet. When when th- well, it's a, it's a chapter about about my daughter's experience, and like it was brutal, man. It was brutal. She was literally walking around on two broken legs for two years, and she had to take incredibly high doses of opiates, and so had all the problems that went along with that. She had to take Ritalin to stay awake. It's like, and she was, in all likelihood, she was dying. There's a bunch of reasons for that. And, and those were just some of her health problems. Those, were just, those weren't even the worst ones, strangely enough. So it was bloody brutal, man. And one of the things we told her, and we managed this, thank God, is I told her once the disease started to develop, she had rheumatoid arthritis very, very seriously. I said to her when she was a little kid, I said, look, kid, this is going to be rough, man. This is going to be rough. And, and here's what you could do to make it worse. It's like, use your illness as an excuse. You do that at your peril. You do that a hundred times. You will not be able to tell the difference between suffering that stops you from moving forward and an excuse for not living, and you'll be done. I said, never, never, never use your illness as an excuse. Like, if you can't do it, you can't do it. You know, we had a good experience with that. It's written in the book when we, we bought her a scooter because... She couldn't use public transportation, and we were all freaked out about that because, like, well, she has damaged bones and, you know, a broken hip and all of this. It's like, you're going to buy that kid a scooter? Really? It's like, well, what are you going to do? Keep her in her bedroom? You want to think that's a good idea? Tell her she can't go out in the world? It's like, have the damn scooter. So after a while, she had to get a license for it. There's a licensing procedure, and to do that, she actually had to ride a motorbike. And so she trained to ride the motorbike, like, not very long after she had her hip replaced. I think it was a six weeks, something like that. So, of course, we're all freaked out about that, too, because it's like, oh, man, she has to ride a motorbike, and she has this hip, and it's like, what are we going to do? And she went, and she did the motorcycle, that first one, but she dropped the bike a couple of times, and some kid wiped out and rolled, like, 30 feet, and that kind of freaked her out, unsurprisingly. And and the, so then the second day, she went with her mom to do the motorcycle training. She also got trained to ride a motorcycle. And... Uh, the second day, she woke up and she said, I don't think I can do this. And we thought, well, you know, that's understandable. It's like, I can understand that. And, and we talked through it. And we said, look, here's what to do, man. It's like, yeah, you can't do it. We understand why you're afraid of it. You can't hold the bike up that well. Um, but why don't you just go? Like, go in the car with your mom and see how you feel when you get there. Because you'll get close and you get right up to it. Maybe you can say no and you have to sit in the car and like that's life and and we get it. But maybe you don't have to. And she went there. So she thought that was okay. And she went there and she picked up the damn motorbike and got her license and everybody cheered at the end. And then she could drive her goddamn scooter around and thank God for that because, you know, she used to go out there and she'd put on her helmet and she'd go on her scooter and she was like ready to go out in the world. And so that's like, that's the difference between making your kids safe and making them strong. 
And it was touch and bloody go, you know, because it could have easily been that she would have been in a little accident with her motorcycle and broken her leg. And then we would have thought, oh, what kind of horrible parents are we? She's already got problems. And we put her on a damn scooter in the middle of the city. It's like, well, you're going to be competent or you're going to be safe. It's like there's nothing safer than competence. And so, and it was great for her because it was just one more act of courage, you know, and, and, it, and she loved that damn scooter. She had it for like six years, and it was a really good idea. Risky as hell, but really a good idea. So, yeah. Well, yeah, again, I'm looking at the clock. We've got to get you out of here. Um, first of all, 12 Rules for Life, um, an antidote to chaos. That's out right now. It's number one on Amazon in America, UK, Canada, everywhere. That's pretty awesome. I'm... I'm, I'm uh, yeah, struck wordless by it. Yeah. 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 Uh, everyone should just get it. Um, and because we didn't talk about anything I wanted to talk about today, we, you, you come back, we'll do this book. And everyone likes to read the books if, I, if they can before I do the podcast yep. on them. So this will give everyone a chance to read it, which will be awesome. Uh, any other things? Well, I should say I've got this online program called Self-Authoring. And uh, I'm offering your viewers a, and listeners a 20% discount. That helps you write out an autobiography so you can figure out like what you haven't sorted out about your life. It helps you write an analysis of your virtues and faults so you can rectify the faults and capitalize on the virtues and helps you make a plan for the future. And I would say to your listeners, don't be afraid to do it badly because a bad plan a bad account for yourself and a bad plan is way better than no account for yourself and no plan. It's way better. So do it. Do it badly. It'll, it'll help orient you in your life. And we have a preponderance of, of scientific data showing, for example, that people who've done the future authoring portion of this, that's the plan are like 30% more likely to stay in university. It has an overwhelming effect. And it works best on people who are doing worst, which is really quite cool. So there's that. I have a personality test at understandmyself.com, and you can go there and get an analysis of 10 aspects of your personality. It's kind of a harsh test. Like, it'll tell you actually what you're like, and it'll probably make you angry, you know, because maybe not, but it probably will. But it'll tell you, It'll help you figure out what jobs you might be suited for, but it'll also tell you where you're weak and could be stronger. And so that's bitter medicine, but, um, but it's better to know. It's better to know because then you can do something about it. So I would say those are two useful things, and, and um, I'd encourage people to, they're inexpensive, give them a try, They'll, they're helpful. And on top of that, you've got your podcast. Yep. You've got your YouTube channel, yep. which has hundreds of hours worth of lectures yep. and is fantastic jordanpeterson.com as well and well i just wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast again but more important i want to thank you for continuing to do what you do i know it's hard work and i know it's taxing on you and on your family life and all that yeah it beats suffering stupidly <laughs> it does indeed <laughs> and i know for a fact that you're having an incredibly positive impact all over the world getting people everywhere to try to at least to grow the hell up grow the hell up man. to grow up to <laughs> speak up the truth room. yeah make themselves and make thereby the world a better, better place wouldn't that be good 
Indeed. could be a better place. That would be good if we could manage that. Yeah. Indeed. All right. Thanks for coming on. You again. bet. Well, we have excused Dr. Jordan Peterson from the. Is this a recording studio? No, we're in a rented office space. Makeshift. Makeshift. Jordan had to go catch a plane and continue to get out there and make the world a better place. Good for him. Yes. Good for us. And Echo, speaking of making the world a better place. Sure. (laughs) Maybe you can let us know how we might be able to make our world a little bit better. Sure. Of course. Yeah. First thing we can do is stay on the path oh and part of staying on the path is maintaining our physical capability and competent competency competency is it competence or competency competency we're going to maintain that that's what we're going (laughs) to do on the path so we have jocko supplements obviously we already know if you don't know krill oil Joint Warfare. So Jocko Super Krill Oil. That's mm-hmm. a Krill Oil supplement. So Joint where Warfare is the glucosamine, chondroitin, and curcumin. Yes. Very good things for your joints. Um, we, you know, at some point we'll go through everything that's in there. Yeah. Not today. Yeah. I, we'll I, do something so that, because I, I don't want to sit here and talk about, but it's good. Yeah, it's good. Use it. Yeah, use it. The And it's not the kind where... It's good because it's generally healthy to take these things, which it is, but that's not the the main push, in my opinion. Check. The main thing is that if your joints are kind of kind of off, Jacked like up. sore, do jujitsu a lot, do anything, yeah. bro. If you if you do brick laying, what is that, mason? Masonry. If you're yeah, like just from you know back elbows and then you start taking this you'll see that you'll feel that difference you specifically yeah and it's generally healthy anyway maintain the joints maintain the competency of your joints with jocko super krill joint warfare take them every day that's what i do in the routine also discipline pre-workout it's a pre-workout for me it's it's a pre-mission for me it's a pre-mission pre- straight up pre-mission yeah. cognitive yeah enhancer yeah and i'll tell you the only downfall of it right now well there's a couple number one it tastes delicious so you want to drink a lot of it number two the other day the other day i drank a a lot of it and then i had to go and give a speech yeah i had to use the restroom right before i went on stage which i don't like yeah just be careful well that's a general thing i know i know it doesn't have to be jocko discipline you you can do that with water be careful yeah yeah you want to be careful but didn't you eat some of it like oh can we oh yeah i ate some of it today it's (laughs) see i'm trying to avoid that (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, see so So i get it just took a mouth a little scoop yeah and it's not too bad in fact you know what uh you know when you get like a shot of some really nasty alcohol People sure. do it, sure, but it gives you like a little hook. Yeah, sure. Kind of gives you some for. of that. Well, yeah. When you take just when you eat the straight powder, sure, which I'm now doing apparently, <laughs> apparently. it gives you a little bit. It gives you a little. Not only you get the the effects of what's in it, but you yeah. get a little bit of a hook. The, the main line yeah. deal. Yeah, that's kind of like yeah. When you're a kid, yeah. you buy the little Kool Aid. You know, when you before you make the Kool Aid, yep. you get like a yeah. little. You try that stuff straight. That's yeah, kind of yeah, what yeah. it's like. Only it's not quite as horrible as that. Better know. than that. It's better than Kool-Aid, huh? Dang. Oh, yeah, definitely better than Kool-Aid. It's good. Jocko made it taste good. 
He's into the taste good stuff. Anyway, it's called di- jo- dis- it's called discipline. It's called straight discipline. up. Yeah, straight you'll up. you'll see it. Anyway, get it at originmain.com and also at originmain.com. You get your, that's where you can get your ghee. So you don't have to well, you can still ask me what ghee to get. No, don't ask anymore. No, no, ask good. I'll tell you. I'll tell you and this is what I'll tell you. Go to origin, pick a ghee from there, whichever one you want. Plenty color, not plenty colors, but the legit color. You I have white. I have one blue ghee that I never mm-hmm. use. All I have is white. Mm-hmm. I have a black ghee. Someone gave me a black ghee and it's yeah. cool, but I've never used it, but cuz a lot of people ask me that too. What color should I get? Yeah. What color should you get? I am very traditional and I use the white ghee, mm-hmm. but I do have a deaf ghee that's black. Black, yeah, I see these super on, dope. But some schools they don't even allow other colors yeah. than white and blue. Yeah, that's true. But Pete says black is the is the number one seller. No kidding. Like if just all colors, black. Yeah. Now, can you compete IBJJF with a black gi? I, I don't know. I, I don't forget. Know. But here's what we were talking about. When you're a little kid and you think about martial arts, what do you want to be? The ninja. You want to be a ninja. Yeah. And so yeah. now you got a 36-year-old guy or a 28-year-old guy. <laughs> sure. And he finally, he's feeling kind of ninja-ish. Yeah, man. Because he's doing the jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Then he's, you take that one extra step, now yeah. he's got a black gi. Boom, ninja. Yeah. In a, in a matter of speaking. Yeah, and I, fe- I actually felt that that's part of the reason why I don't get a black gi. Because I, I kind of wanted, like, not... like There's an old Charles Bronson movie. Feathers. What do you mean? An old Charles Bronson movie called The Mechanic. Yeah. Yeah, the mechanic. and there's a, there's, a, there's a scene where the traditional karate guy is going to fight a guy that's got some new tricks up his sleeve. Sure. And the traditional karate guy has to get nuts on him. Yeah. But he's in a just a plain white gi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the tradition. And and Charles Bronson, too. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, holding the line. Strangely, I mainly stick to white because it's kind of that's the the main, like I'm not doing too much with the the cool black one. Because let's face it, the the black one, like I said about being a ninja and it looks cool, but it does. It looks (laughs) really cool. And, but I didn't want to roll in and be like, and they think, oh, cool. you think you're, you think you're all cool with your black geek kind yeah. of thing. Even no, though the, the thing is, I think it's progressed beyond that. It's totally. It's, it's beyond that now. Yeah. You, you are not, you are not, uh, standing out at no, all at when all, you have yeah. a black geek. Now yeah. you might be, if you go to a traditional, you know, school that has only white geese. Yeah, you're right. gonna stand out. You come into Victory MMA and fitness, you could be wearing a purple gee. No one's gonna care. Yeah, no one's even gonna look Pink. at you second. Camouflage gee. Yeah, no one cares. They might be like, "Dang, that's a cool camouflage gee." They might, they say, might that. say that. They might just put but... chokehold on you and get after it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there it is. I would say, okay, if they're saying, "Hey, Jocko, Echo, what gee should I get? What color should I get?" We know origin. What color should I get? A, ask your school first. Yeah. Because some they don't point. allow. Good point. You, you're going to buy your cool black gi or there's like an army green. Is there an army green yeah. one? You're going to buy it and they look dope and you're solid. You're ready to go and you come in and they say you can't train with yeah. that. You can't have that. So ask your school first. If they allow all colors, then that one's up to you, bro. Yeah. But but the, the point is with asking what color is that, I think. I think that. They're like, hey, is there like a violation if I no. get this cool black one and you answered it? Yeah, now? No, no, no unless cares. your school does. It's literally no factor. Literally no factor. Check. So they got a lot. Anyway, originmain.com. That's where you get them. Also, onit.com slash Jocko. This is where I get the kettlebells. 
the dope kettlebells. You didn't talk about rash rash guards. Oh, at Origin. Yeah, yeah. And because the reason it, it popped into my mind because they have spats now. Because they have spats now. Mm-hmm. The first run of spats are green and like some other color. Yeah, yellow or lime yeah. green. Yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> I sent Pete a text. Now yeah. I'm not a spats wearing dude. No, sure. I'm not wearing tights. Not happening. No, no sure. nothing against people that do. Yeah. There's some. There's some crazy jujitsu guys out there that are wearing tights like you read about. Yeah, man. But <laughs> I sent. I said. I said, yeah. hey Pete, I'm not wearing tights. Yeah. I know a lot of people that do. Mm-hmm. Make some black ones or something else. Yeah. And he said, got it. Yeah. So you can get. Obviously, the rash guards are good to go. Yeah. But now you can also get spats that are not so we're sticking with spats we're sticking then. with spats well we figured out the root of spats yeah, right they were dope yeah yeah it's a good thing yeah. it's not it's, i thought it would root back to you know some ballerina yeah some ballerina thing no yeah. it's war yeah it's what you yeah, wore man. on your legs when you were a cavalryman yep yeah and, so we can say spats it's been approved yeah and football it's the same thing yeah it's you you tape your yeah. shoe and your so we're good ankle yeah fully interesting color choice yeah the first one here's the thing though yeah, about the spats. Yeah, some colors you don't see. Like, like if if I was like, hey, I'm I'm gonna wear this lime green and yellow thing, whatever shirt, yeah. spats, whatever, and you'd be like, lime green, yellow, that just doesn't even sound good. I'm looking at these two colors. I don't think that's gonna look good. But then you put it on a shirt or spats or something, and then you put it on. You're like, oh dang, that kind of works for some reason. I'm not saying lime green and yellow does that. I'm just saying yeah. certain color co- yeah combinations. So here's are like the interesting that. thing. Pete's my bro. Right, <laughs> sure. Me, of Pete, course. Pete, yeah, literally. When the first time I had a um, uh, Skype conversation with Pete, mm-hmm. my wife was like, "It sounded like you were talking, talking to yourself, yourself, right?" Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we and we that was a four-hour conversation, by the way. <laughs> Dang, bro. Now, with that that being said, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have made spats that looked like the first spats that he had come out with in a million years. Now, here's <laughs> now here's the funny thing. I can't even yeah. say I can't even say, "Hey, Pete, don't you know." No one's gonna like those. You know why? Because my sense of fashion, yeah, is so off. My yeah. sense of fashion is non-existent. Well, it, yeah, it, it's literally non-existent. It would be non-existent if you even had one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's right. Well, no, it's non-existent. Yeah. If you had one, it would be. Get it? It's like double non-existent. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, so I, that's why I can't even say, "Hey, Pete." I can't say. I can't make a, a blanket statement like, "Pete, people won't like those." Yeah. I can't even say that because yeah, I have you no know. idea. Yeah. So I just said, what I do know is people would definitely like some black ones. Right. Yeah. That's pretty safe to say. So, yeah. Yeah. That's I, that. I don't mind the green ones, by the way. But well, there none you none go. Nonetheless. You, you, even we've had this stuff. We've had issues like this. Yes. Where you make things that I, I just don't. Yeah. Unapproved. I'm not, I'm, yeah. They're unapproved. Yeah. Unapproved across the board. Yeah. But I just know you just kind of just don't know. And yeah. And, cool. I, and, I, and I say, okay, you know, I don't know. That's, I got to stay humble over here. Yeah. I can't claim to... Th- claim to have any any footing to stand on at all when it comes to fashion, fashion. of any kind. Yeah. Other than haircuts. I'm pretty good with those. You know what? Yeah. Shave sure. your head. I agree. Next question. Next question. <laughs> so yeah, again, orjiming.com. There's a lot of cool stuff on those hoodies and stuff too, by the way. Yeah. Which and this is a this is a bi not biased, uh, what do you call it? Subjective. When I was wearing the full origin sweatsuit mm-hmm. at home, <laughs> I laid down on the couch, just took a break or whatever. No, I don't normally do that. Took it a would, break from what? Cruising? Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you 
you know, doing whatever it is I was doing. Took a break, lay down on the couch, full sweat suit on origin. It was the most comfortable moment I had in recent memory. And just so everyone knows, if you're talking about Echo's comfort levels, they're already exceeding yeah, high. high. It's saying a lot. Yes. That's saying a lot. I know the you know comfort. I know about it. I'm very familiar with it. And yeah, it was not saying a lot. So yeah, there it is. Okay, back to on it. The kettlebells that I get, whole set, almost the whole set. Primal bells, zombie bells, legend bells. They're the kettlebells. Mm. That's where you get them on it.com slash Jocko. Also, they got some cool maces on there. Jocko is the mace, right? I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. 20 if pounder. You, you think 20 pounds is not heavy? Yeah. It's heavy. Yeah. It's really heavy. That's one of yeah. those things. And we kind of yeah. talked about it before where you th- weight, like weight, like this many pounds or, you know, kilos, whatever. It's not cre- all created equal. Like if it's oh, shaped sure. in a certain form yeah. or formless or whatever that's way different yeah like my daughter i think i forget how much she even weighs now like 53 pounds or something mm-hmm. like that 53 pounds is nothing as far as lifting goes, yeah, yeah for sure. lift it yeah try to lift her when she don't want to be lifted bro she's she like base she, <laughs> she has a good face feel like 150 pounds nonetheless the point there is with these maces and there's other cool stuff on there if you want to vary up your workout make it interesting Unlike Jocko's workout, make it make yours interesting. If you want to do that, you don't have to. There's some really good stuff on there. Check them out. And, you know, if you want something, get something. Also, when you get Jordan Peterson's 12 rules, just call it 12 rules. 12 rules. 12 rules for life, an antidote to chaos. Jordan B. Peterson. It's 12 rules for life is like, it seems like a big claim, you know? Yeah. But they're pretty. They're pretty solid. They're pretty solid. Yeah, yeah. follow those. Nonetheless, that uh, that is a good one. Um, when you get that one, and any other any of the other books, don't worry, I organized them all for you. Go to jockopodcast.com. Somebody said the other day on the internet, said to me, "Oh, you should have a book club. We got a book club. Go to jockopodcast.com and click on books. All the books are there. That's the club right there. Yeah, don't have to ask me about the book club. The books are there." Yeah, idea. We got it organized for you by episode, by the way. Mm-hmm. Little brief description. Mm-hmm. Uh, click on there. Boom. Get your book from there. It's a good way to support. Takes the Amazon. You can get your book if you are doing other shopping. Hey, carry on. Just do your thing. No one's going to stop you from that, of course. And that supports the podcast. Good way to support. Small action, big reaction. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. That one seems obvious. I know. But. It's a good way to support. Just a little good way to support. Just and subscribe. write a review, a funny review. Yeah, I'm go like once a week now. I go and read all the new reviews. Yeah, yeah looking yeah. for gems. Yeah, there's some gems in there. <laughs> you guys Straight are up gems. <laughs> yeah, if you feel like it. Um, yeah, so so subscribe, write a v- review if you want. Subscribe to YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. If you didn't know that already, um, that's where the video version of this podcast resides. You like that? Besides, yeah. good job. <laughs> also, excerpts on there if you don't want to listen or watch. Should I say the whole episode or episodes? Got some excerpts on there. You can just watch little, um, you know, little excerpts, little tidbits of the podcast, little ideas, little lessons, tips of advice in shorter form. You know, when you take a break at work or whatever, 
Check. Not that you should be watching YouTube at work, but if you are, you watch this, boom, get back to work, more effective, probably. Probably. Also, some other stuff on there. I'm gonna, we're going to try to slowly add more and more, what should I say, content. Not just for the sake of adding content, by the way. Because I make videos from time to time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very spaced out over I, time. You know, they're, you know, we're trying to get them done. Nonetheless, I'm, uh, we're going to put more. In. There's going to be more and more on there. It's a new year, right? What's well, February now? Talk so. is cheap, bro. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on also. Jocko is a store. It's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. That this is the website online store where you can get Discipline Equals Freedom shirts, Rash Guards, the Victory MMA and Fitness shirt that Jocko always wears. <laughs> like Einstein, by the way. I think Einstein wore the same thing every day too. Uh-huh. Is that why you do it? No, I do it because it's simple, not because Einstein does it. Actually, they say that this is you and Einstein wear the same thing every day for the same reason. Yeah, because is what they say. Less decision making. Yeah, because yeah. your decision making, you know, resources. Yeah, I don't really believe all that. I just believe, hey, I don't feel like sitting around thinking about what I'm going to wear in the morning. Just right. grab the. I have a shirt drawer. Guess what's right. in it? Shirts. Pull yeah. one out. Put it on. Right. You have bigger things to make Next decisions question. about and yeah. think about. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's what I read too. So, you guys, you and Einstein, <laughs> are like. Now, I don't want to say obsessed. You're like, you're just real into more important things. So what you wear, that's that, that's, that shouldn't take up too many of your decision-making resources. The thing about Jocko store. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever made this clear. Well, maybe you have, but if you want to support the podcast, that's a good way to support the podcast for a while. People want us to do a thing where you donate money. Yeah. And I said, mm, no, yeah. people want, to support that we're not gonna ask for money and give them nothing yeah we'll give them something a t-shirt a hat a yeah. sticker a, yeah good stuff by the way it's not the shirt that makes the man it's the man that makes the shirt so well, okay there you go nonetheless there are, are you saying that because you're the one that makes these shirts <laughs> no i think it's a, that's a, it's a different thing i think i saw it on the movie uh what was it the one with Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta, Catherine okay. Zeta Jones. Continue. Remember that one? No. <laughs> Remember they had to steal something. Continue. Right, you know what movie I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, there's some hoodies on there, some hats on there. Um, we're restocking. Actually, I'm doing a thing because the people email because you know there's stuff out of stock and then you yeah. Know, guess what? Not never again. I'm hesitant to say never say never, but yeah, never again. Okay, so everything is in stock right now. N- not necessarily. Okay, come back when you're ready. Okay, <laughs> in the meantime, just keep being your lame uh, self. The system over there. that I'm working on is all very close to being complete. Okay, so they'd be available, and some new stuff's going to be on there. Also, rash guards on there for jujitsu mm-hmm. or for anything physical. You know, you're doing physically. You want to keep your range of motion. You know, whatever. Anyway, you know what rash guards are? They're they're pretty dope. Um, also women's stuff on there and I am not saying I say this a lot I'm gonna say it again I'm not saying buy something I'm saying go on there just look if you don't want anything then don't get something but if you do want something get something it's a good way to support also that's really uh, deep you know I'm trying to keep it deep. <laughs> <laughs> you know if you want something get something if you don't want something don't yeah, all right yeah. cool 
We'll abide by that. Is it kind of like, you know how like when people no. say it is what it is? <laughs> Whatever. You know what they say? Hey, it is uh, what it is. Yes. Jocko's not going to be anyone but Jocko. You know, Jocko's Jocko. True. Right? Same thing. Then why do you say that? You know, kind of. I say that for the same reason. Also, Psychological Warfare. If you don't know what that is, it's an album with tracks, Jocko tracks, not Jocko playing the ukulele or the violin or what else do you play? <laughs> no, drums. I don't play the violin. Uh, I can't really play the drums too well either. Yeah. But you play stuff. Nonetheless, it's none of that. It's Jocko t- giving you. So each track is Jock, uh, Jock, Jocko's, how should I say, tips. Not really tips. They're kind of tips on how to eliminate the weakness that you're feeling at any given moment on your path, on your campaign, on the campaign against weakness. That's what it is. So if you're about to skip your workout because A, you don't feel like it, B, you don't think you have time or something like this, or usually it's because you don't feel like it because you worked out yesterday, you're kind of sore, like you were going to do squats today. But you did a bunch of burpees yesterday. So your lower back and your quads, they're kind of sore. So you're like, maybe I'll just do it tomorrow. No. So all you got to do, it's like, put in psychological warfare. Listen to, there's a, there's a track for that. And he'll, he'll just explain, just in his own little Jocko way, explain why you shouldn't do that. Why you should just do the workout. And after you listen to it, you'll be like, dang, that makes sense. And guess what? Boom. All of a sudden you're doing the workout. You didn't skip it. That's what you do. If you like that, you can also get Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual on iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play, other MP3 platforms. It's not on Audible. It's not on Audible. It's available as an album. Actually, two albums. Also, you can get Jocko White Tea, which, as everybody now knows, will increase your deadlift to a minimum of 8,000 pounds been proven over and over again everyone mm-hmm. knows it now it's really not impressive anymore yeah. since so many people are hitting that 8,000 pound max books Jordan B Peterson maps of meaning is his first book it's old it's big it's expensive I have it it's it's a great read also 12 rules for life an antidote to chaos way the warrior kid so way the warrior kid kids book Teaching kids to how get how to get on the path. Now, there's a new book coming out, a new Warrior Kid book. It is available now on Amazon. It's called Way of the Warrior Kid, Mark's Mission. It's a follow-up. The first book was fifth grade. The second book, sixth grade. Mark's getting a little older. Guess what? He's still got some problems to solve, and he's going to solve them. So you can order that. Also... As I already mentioned, Discipline Equals Freedom, Field Manual, that is available if you want to get bigger, stronger, faster, smarter, more disciplined, better, get that book. And then implement it, because you can get the book and sit, sit around and, and play video games. It's not going to make you any of those things. Sure. You have to actually get it. You have to read it. You have to implement it. So that works. Oh, also with the Warrior Kids. Don't forget, you can get some Warrior Kids soap, basically. <laughs> I got some. Did you get some? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to go. IrishOaksRanch.com. Young Aiden, who's a Warrior Kid, making his own soap, business owner, age 12. Check that out. Extreme Ownership, 
book by myself and my brother Leif Babin. It's about combat leadership. It's about how to lead. That's what it's about. And people think that's a simple thing. It's not. You even heard Jordan B. Jordan B. Peterson say today, leadership is very complicated. He's right. So extreme ownership will help you in your leadership skills, tactics, and strategies. Also, if you need leadership guidance and direction at your company, at your business, or at your team, beyond what we give you here on this podcast and beyond the books, I have a leadership and management consulting company. It's called Echelon Front, where we will get the leadership you have and thereby your whole organization aligned and moving forward together. It's me, it's Leif Babin, it's JP Donnell, it's Dave Burke. You can email info at echelonfront.com or you can go to the website, echelonfront.com. Also, there is The Muster. This is a leadership seminar that hits you like an atom bomb. So the muster, everyone that's been to it, there's nothing else like it. The people that work at the hotels we've done it at have said there's nothing else like it. So it's awesome. If you want to come to it, we're only doing two musters this year. We don't have time to do more. We're doing one in Washington, D.C., May 17th and 18th. That's for the East Coast people. May 17th and 18th, Washington, D.C. And then we're going to do San Francisco, October 17th and 18th. That's for your West Coast people. Those are the only two musters that we're doing this year. We're not doing Vancouver. We're not doing Atlanta. We're not doing Memphis. We're not doing Tampa. Those are all great cities, but we're not going to do a muster there. We've had four musters already. San Diego, New York City, San Diego again, and Austin, Texas. All the musters that we've done have sold out. These two that we're doing this year are going to sell out as well. So if you want to come, register at ExtremeOwnership.com. We will see you there. And until then, if you want to get on the path with us, you can find us. We'll be cruising on the interwebs on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Boha. <laughs> Jordan Peterson is at Jordan B. Peterson. He's also got the YouTube channel, Jordan Peterson. He's got jordanpeterson.com. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And finally, thanks to all of you. I know a lot of men and women in uniform listen to this podcast. I hear from you all the time. Well, we would not have this podcast if it wasn't for you overseas holding the line and keeping evil at bay. And to the people in uniform here at home, police, law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, and the rest of you first responders, thank you for keeping us safe inside our borders. And to everyone else out there moving through life, and that's good. That's fine, but I recommend you don't just move through life. I recommend you move down the path. Get stronger and faster and smarter and better every day. Aim to be the best. And as Jordan Peterson writes so eloquently in his book, always place your becoming above your current being. In other words, 
get up and get after it. Until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.